Digital Drift episode 76, recorded Sunday the 26th of July 2015, Ant-Man. Imagine a soldier the size of an insect. The ultimate secret weapon. If you give godlike powers to everyone, it's gonna be chaos. So how do we stop him? By knowing I. Scott, I've been watching you for a while. You're different. And I believe everyone deserves a shot at redemption. Do you? Absolutely. My days of breaking into places and stealing stuff are over. What do you want me to do? I want you to break into a place and steal some stuff. Makes sense. Are you ready to become the hero? Now, this suit has power. You have to learn how to control it. And these are your greatest allies. You're kind of cute. Whoa. When you're small, you have superhuman strength. You like a bullet. So you need to know how to punch. You want to show me how to punch? Show me how to punch. That's how you punch. You tried to hide your suit from me. Now, it's gonna blow up in your face and destroy everyone you care about. Scott, get out of there! Did you think you could stop the future? You're just a thief! No. A man-man. I know. It wasn't my idea. Welcome back to the ongoing Marvel Cinematic Universe podcasts. With us tonight is my wife, Sharon Shaw. Good evening. And returning from the Guardians of the Galaxy podcast are Lauren Grieve of A Year of Steam. Hello there. Mike Hearn of the webcomic Walter the Wicked. Hey, how's it going? Last heard on the Terminator Genesis show, Mr. James Carter of Kane and Rince. Thank goodness this is better. (laughs) Before we start, I'd like to announce our new YouTube show on this podcast officially. It is called School of Movies. And it's Sharon and I talking for 10 minutes at a time about a particular aspect of a film. Different film every week. Same as this, but less focused on long-standing series. More sort of like a grab bag of different movies that sort of catch our eye. And it's kind of a super-focused visual presentation of one of these podcasts. So rather than us yakking about it for an hour, two hours, it's just... Boom, 10 minutes of really like educational type, fun type, interesting type, like um, idea channel. And do you, do you guys ever watch um, uh, Game Show? No, but I've meant to. It's on okay. my list of things to do. Um, it's very good. Watch it is it. very good. Very similar to the idea channel, but focused on games. And uh, also, of course, extra credits. These are major inspirations for this. So, uh, yeah, that's the, uh, the, the direction we've gone in. And we're doing this. F- you know, all out. We bought a whole bunch of new equipment, and uh, thank you very much to Ian and Megan Hopwood for supplying us with the funds for that. Now, the first episode was on Jaws and where the characters need to be likable. The second just happens to be on Ant-Man, where we are discussing the virtues of smaller-scale movies within long-running epic series. 
Now, that won't be part of this podcast episode. So if you want the full Ant-Man experience, you go watch that on YouTube, either before or after listening to this show. It's its own thing. So this School of Movies project is ongoing. We're just going to be carrying on with this at least for the next year. And and we'll be doing that alongside Digital Drift, though rarely on the same thing in the same week, unless it's particularly new. On that note, we just saw Inside Out. And it's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, it's really, really good. <laughs> my, my daughter loved it. So is. It's one of the best movies we've ever seen. It's one of the best movies Pixar's ever done. And it's too complex, rich, and detailed, in fact, to do it justice after just one viewing. We hadn't expected that. We thought, like Mad Max, uh, maybe we just like watch it and then just like come back bursting with things to say. There's too much. There is too much. And we need to watch it, write loads of essays about it, and just get ourselves really focused. So we're actually going to wait for the Blu-ray on this one. However, the third School of Movies episode will be on the way Inside Out visualizes the concepts it is dealing with. So that means we're now doing a YouTube show, a podcast, and New Century, the audio drama, every single week. And right now, I'm absolutely exhausted. I haven't rested for one moment this weekend. Seriously, I have been editing like crazy. But the show must go on. And if you want to support the creators whose stuff you love, we're on Patreon. I'd say a few bucks a month for all of this is more than a square deal. Or, if you'd rather donate in a one-time fashion, it just so happens that the website just came up for renewal. So we've got hefty fees to pay for the next two years' worth of hosting. So, an appreciative PayPal donation via the button on digitaldrift.co.uk would take the edge off that. And finally, we are updating to a new podcast provider after experiencing various issues with Libsyn. So now we're on Podbean. And you'll definitely need to find the new feed on iTunes and subscribe. The old one will be closed off at the end of August, which means that come September, you'll be clicking refresh and it'll be, well, why aren't there new episodes? Because you need to go find it on uh, iTunes again or wherever else you get podcasts and look for Digital Drift and see the new stuff. And hopefully, we're hopefully, fingers crossed, going to be moving all the library across and refining it and making things a little bit easier to access. Uh, so, yeah. Lots of changes, lots of new stuff, and uh, any support, very gratefully received. So, Ant-Man. Right. So, should we start off with the comic? Because that's always been the way I've done it in these uh, Marvel shows. Makes sense. Okay. So, from Wikipedia, Ant-Man is the name of several fictional superheroes appearing in books published by Marvel Comics, created by Stan Lee, Larry Lieber, who, uh, younger brother of Stan Lee, of course, Stan Lee Lieber and Jack Kirby. Ant-Man's first appearance was in Tales to Astonish number 27, January 62. The persona was originally the superhero alias of the brilliant scientist Hank Pym after inventing a substance that allowed him to change size. However, Scott Lang and a chap named Eric O'Grady have also taken on the Ant-Man mantle. So, Hank Pym is a biophysicist and security operations center expert who decided to become superhuman after discovering a chemical substance known as Pym Particles... I'm assuming it was known as Pym Particles after he named them, would allow the user to alter his size. Armed with a helmet that could control ants, Pym would shrink down to the size of an insect to become the mystery-solving Ant-Man. He soon shared his discovery with his girlfriend Janet Van Dyne, his crime-fighting partner as the Wasp. The duo would become founding members of the Avengers, fighting recurring enemies such as the mad scientist Egghead, the mutant Whirlwind, and Pym's own robotic creation, 
Ultron. Now, while Pym is the original Ant-Man, he has adopted other aliases over the years, including Giant-Man, Goliath, and Yellow Jacket. Mm-hmm. And Wasp, after... He also became Wasp after Janet's presumed death in Secret Invasion. He's also Iron Man and Captain America, leaving his original persona vacant. His successors have taken up the Ant-Man role while Pym explored these other identities. Scott Lang was a thief who became Ant-Man after stealing the Ant-Man suit to save his daughter, Cassandra Lang, from a heart condition. Um... This what actually that's something they changed about this, wasn't it? They, they never mentioned that Cassie had a heart condition or anything like that. Yeah, I, I think it's official that she doesn't have any okay. kind of condition in the MCU. Didn't um, wasn't Spider Man three the one where uh, the Sandman's daughter had a a, a medical condition and he was stealing yes. so that he could? Uh, it's basic. This felt very much like that. Yeah. It? Yeah. Now, Stan Lee tended to do the same thing over and over again. He liked Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and he liked the misunderstood criminal trying to, you know, go straight, but uh, failing. Uh, reforming from his life of crime, Lang took a full-time career on as Ant-Man with the encouragement of Hank Pym. He became an affiliate of the Fantastic Four and, most recently, a full-time member of the Avengers. For a period of time, he dated Jessica Jones, she of the upcoming... Um, what's it called? AKA Jessica Jones? No, they're dropping the. They've dropped AKA. it. Yeah. They're just calling it. Well, they're just calling it Jessica Jones. Yep. Okay, because they can't call it Alias because of Jessica uh, Jennifer Garner, yep. who was Electra. Confusing. Uh, he was later killed by the Scarlet Witch, along with Vision and Hawkeye in Avengers Disassembled. I don't. I wouldn't take that as something that's actually going to happen, though, folks. Although, yeah, no, not so much. Yeah, uh, and uh, his daughter took up the heroic mantle as stature in the book Young Avengers. So, if you got Civil War, uh, she actually, I believe, uh, she's one of the ones who uh, joins Captain America's team and then bows out and goes, "Oh, this is too dangerous." He returned to life in 2011 in the miniseries The Children's Crusade, but lost his daughter when she heroically sacrificed herself to stop a supercharged Doctor Doom, who would later revive her during the Axis event. So again, this is Marvel's revolving door policy on death. Um, so yeah, the thing that really strikes you about Hank Pym himself um, when you, you get into the character is that he's just not satisfied with one role, one uh, superhero persona. In fact, um, he's one of the more emotionally troubled Marvel characters and this is something they didn't really go into in the film because they were deliberately focusing on Scott rather than Hank had they focused on Hank and given it say a trilogy of movies um, it very likely he'd have gone Ant-Man then Giant-Man and then maybe eventually Yellow Jacket he just seems to keep changing persona and not just his power but his whole personality seems to change and he gets a new persona to sort of match that um but they very deliberately made him just sort of a, 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 a straightforward old scientist, ex-superhero, military-trained chap in this, just for, for focus, I suppose. Um, they do hint at, um, from Hope's perspective, his personality has changed, and um, there's a couple of moments where he clearly shows he's got a bit of a temper, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they, they rein it all in and explain everything away, and obviously have him... No, you know, take responsibility for not longer, not any longer being uh, Ant Man anymore. So, yeah. um, there's vague hints at it, but I don't think that's necessarily intentional. Um, so, I mean, there's one other thing about him which seems to follow him around like a bad smell. In uh, when he became Yellow Jacket, specifically in the comics, um, he became very aggressive and, and was very uh, troubled and uh, ended up smacking his uh, uh, wife or at the time maybe girlfriend around uh, Janet, uh, the Wasp, which 
clearly and absolutely justifiably ruffled a lot of feathers. And then it's one of those things that people go back to when they're sort of going, did you know that, etc. Um, and in the Ultimates, Mark Miller took that and went, let's go full on with this to like straight out really nasty domestic violence. And uh, so, I mean, more, you know, I, I read the Ultimates before I really got into Avengers. So I, you know, the first um, encounter I ever had with Hank Pym, he was loathsome. So um, it, it took basically uh, the the TV version of Hank uh, Pym in uh, Earth's Mightiest Heroes, the animated series, uh, to really kind of show me who Hank actually was before the trouble started. And then they actually do explore his uh, his slow um, breakdown in that show as well. It's it's, it's kind of um, it's admirable that they went that far. But um, yeah, the uh, when Kevin Feige was asked about that at Comic Con, he went, "Guess what? We're not doing," which <laughs> is. Uh, a very wise move, ultimately. Uh, so I'm going to shut up now. Um, how how much do you guys know about the early production woes when Edgar Wright and Joe Cornish were involved in this project? I know uh, more about the resolution than I do about you know what actually caused it. Okay. I, I just remember I was quite uh, quite impressed with the whole scenario. Edgar went on and, and you know just said, "Look, I'm just leaving." He really said nothing. He just, just left it. He was very professional. And then at least the articles that I read, Marvel went on and said, yeah, you know what? Blame us. Like, you know, we, we, it's our fault that he left. It's this, that's the end of discussion. You know, he didn't do anything wrong. It's us. And mm-hmm. I, I was just really impressed with all that. Anyone else? Uh, I basically know nothing about it. I try to stay out of the pre-production for movies that I know I'm going to see just cause, uh, it, can ruin things for you a little bit if you know a little bit too much about how the sausage is made in my mind. So I try to stay away from it. A fine point. On um, the other hand, sometimes it can really <laughs> inform upon the film itself. So yeah. it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's a double edged sausage. Well, the, <laughs> but the problem though is I find that it only informs on films that are terrible. Like, uh, Alien 3, for instance, mm. is like, wow, this movie's pretty bad. And then you you look at the pre-production stuff and you're like, okay, there's a reason why this movie's pretty bad. But if it's a movie that's really good, I don't, I'm not too worried about the, the pre-production stuff. So if I go and look up anything, it'll be after the fact, not before. Oh, well, okay. Well, that's, that's just different for like classics like uh, um, you know, Blade Runner and Apocalypse Now were plagued by issues. And, uh, and actually can make some really fascinating... Uh, I mean, in the case of Apocalypse Now, um, is it Heart of Darkness, the documentary about the making of it, is more interesting to me than the film itself. <laughs> it's, it's basically about a director gone mad. I think one thing that struck me was the fact that uh, Edgar Wright's credited as one of the writers... Um, so that obviously, yeah, yeah, they obviously still, um, felt that his contribution and the work he'd put into it was, uh, deserving of acknowledgement, which suggests that whatever parting they had was not as antagonistic Mm. as you would usually expect if a director walks off a, uh, a particular film. And this is following, uh, years of Marvel going, right, you're not going to give us Wolverine back? We'll fucking kill Wolverine then. Oh, we've killed the Fantastic Four. They don't exist anymore. Maybe mutants don't exist anymore. <laughs> and, uh, oh, Spider-Man's dead. Now he's back again. And we'll change it around. What are you going to do, Sonny? What are you going to do? Are oh, you going to give it to us? That's fine then. We'll bring Spider-Man back. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, may be, it may be as simple as Marvel aren't stupid. They don't want to burn any bridges. And if he hadn't done anything particularly um, alienating to yeah. them... They may want to keep him in the back pocket for a, a smaller project later on. Yeah, I was going to say, Marvel seems to have found this formula, and I'm not talking about a film formula, uh, this business formula where 
they can be a mega corporation. They're not even as loved as Apple, at least not in the same way. It doesn't seem to be, I, I guess maybe the comics have that kind of fanboys, but not the film universe, not, not really, where they just, they just turn out this nice product and they keep making money. And they're not, they, yet, they haven't done anything stupid. The stupidest thing they've done so far is, to some of the fans, letting uh, uh, Wright walk off. And, and even that they, they seem to have salvaged. Yeah. Well, from the sounds of it, uh, oh, sorry, what were you going to say something, James? Um, uh, yeah, I was just going to say this um, ha- was reminiscent of Matthew Vaughn with the X-Men franchise yeah. to me in yeah. that he ended up having to walk away from Last Stand and that went the way it did. But they obviously still wanted to foster that relationship yeah. and, and brought him back in for first class. And, for the and he's best still one. <laughs> and yeah, but he, he um, was, was still on as uh, story credit and writer yeah. for Days of Future Past as yeah. well. So. Um, and and actually, to to your point, Sharon, uh, Edgar Wright wasn't just on as uh, a scriptwriter; he was also on for story and on as a producer in the credits. Yeah. His name was all over those credits. So right. yeah, there's still a lot of him, obviously, in in this film. Um, and it's great that that they want to acknowledge that. Um, yeah, sorry, that's, that's all I want to say. Alex. I would speculate that the original script maybe didn't contain enough continuity with the existing Marvel universe and the, what they were going to do moving forwards, and uh, they uh, most likely would have clashed uh, regarding that. Um, yeah, and it's it's a shame, but the way it actually turned out, it, it it fits very neatly in with the Marvel continuity. And Peyton Reed, I had zero faith in this man. <laughs> I've, I've watched Yes Man, and I just—that's one of my favorite books. And I just sort of sat there going, "This just is. This is bilge," and I didn't laugh once. And it's a comedy, and uh, bring it on. Don't like it. Don't, don't. Did not expect Peyton Reed to deliver anything even vaguely likable. Likable had serious misgivings about this film. Did anyone else? Did anyone else like really think this is going to be not so good in terms of general Avengers movies? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think um, the rumblings about Edgar Wright and Ant-Man have been around since before Iron Man came out. Mm. It's been known that he wanted to do something with this character. He, it was going to be a comedy because the character has certain inherent uh, kind of ridiculous aspects or potentially ridiculous aspects to him mm-hmm. in terms of what his power is, etc. Um but yeah, I think the, the problem that they've faced and seems to be the case all the way along from 2008 to now, so basically the last sort of um, six or seven years of development has been that the Marvel continuity, the cinematic universe, has been growing and growing in terms of all the threads and all the different characters and the storylines that have woven together. Um, and Marvel just aren't in a position to want to, as Marvel Studios, be putting out a film that doesn't fit into that yeah. 100% and that that I imagine, again, this is complete speculation, could be stifling to someone like Edgar Wright who's trying to make the film he's wanted to make for potentially a decade or more. Each film has to serve many masters, and ultimately you can't just go, well, continuity is not one of the masters I want to serve. So, yeah, personally, I I would have loved to see uh, uh, whatever Edgar Wright's vision of this was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Peyton Reed wasn't someone that I looked at and thought that's the person to take over this film. I'm very Um, pleased I was wrong on that one. Yeah, yeah, ditto. I was expecting um, something closer to Norton's Hulk, and uh, I, I really think we got a lot closer to the first Iron Man in terms of, of uh, presentation. Like the hmm. the first Hulk feels far more detached than uh, than this. Like, the, well, this doesn't feel detached at all. This really 
you know really fits into the universe and really works. Mm-hmm. And when you go back and you watch uh, the the Hulk with Norton. And uh, I mean, the the ties are still there because they put them there intentionally, but it doesn't feel anywhere near as connected as, as everything else. I think the ties are there. They they're more in mentioning when they bring out the super soldier serum, and yeah. uh, they mention you know they, this was put on ice for a reason. And of course, you get Stark at the end, but this was really early days. They didn't know what they were doing at the yeah. time. Really, they they were just sort of uh, feeling it out. As I recall, the, so do you remember that drinks factory that uh, um, Banner was? working at the beginning of Incredible Hulk. I remember. Oh, that got a shout out somewhere. Yeah, I think there was a poster for it in Ant-Man for that that type of drink. So maybe they didn't go out of business after Stan Lee became a Hulk. (laughs) (laughs) He was hoping. Well, Stan Lee's really just the Watcher, so if he turned into the Hulk, he would just blip back out into space yeah. or whatever and come back as himself. Because he's, I mean, that would just, that's that's my favorite fan theory about the MCU, is that he's actually the, the Watcher. Watcher. Oh, I, gotta, I gotta go over geek here. Isn't that not how Hulk's blood works? I thought that um, only his family hulked out when they got the blood. Everybody else just gets sick. Yeah, no, yeah, uh, the, 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 the I, continuity is actually that Stan Lee's character became sick and probably died. But that's less interesting than, than Stan Lee hulking out, turning green and sm- smashing down the street going, Stan Lee wants hot dogs or something along those lines. Uh, I do that in one of the, one of the Lego, Lego games. games. Yeah, the, the Lego Marvel. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so as for me, for the movie, I, um, since I didn't really look into the pre-production too much, and honestly, it didn't it didn't even occur to me who Edgar Wright was. I couldn't think of other movies that he had done when I had even heard his name. I do know now, obviously, because I was like, wait a minute, I'm dumb. And I looked them <laughs> up. Um, but all I knew about Ant-Man going into this was the about the comics. He was, you know, an original Avenger, founding member of the team. There were uh, really two of them, because the one guy you mentioned, Eric, he is kind of a sleazebag, yeah. if I remember correctly, from the comics. The, the like, last Ant-Man. And he's kind of a bit of a sociopath and, and, and when it was a really short run, but Scott and Hank are the two big ones. Mm. And all I knew is that Hank was known as like this wife beater. And, um, I, I was like, wow, uh, I, so as someone who loves guardians of the galaxy and mm. one of the only people in the world who knew who guardians of the galaxy were before the movie, <laughs> I had very high expectations for that that were still exceeded. But for this movie, I had very low expectations having not actually read any of the comics, but only having hearsay on who this character was and what he did and how he contributed. So, and I was pleasantly surprised yeah. as I, I everyone else was, I think the, um, the thing about the, the whole domestic abuse aspect to that character, um, Alex, I'm sure you've pointed out before that if as, as close to demon in the bottle as Marvel wanted to get was Iron Man two, yeah. there was no way they were going near that. Oh, and, and as you say, they'd already said Kevin Feige had already said, but yeah, it's just, I think, that obviously, rightly, is something that people know that character for. If that's what where they took that character, that's not something you shake off just by, you know, changing writer and artist in the comics or anything. Yeah. Um, if I if but, I remember correctly, though, uh, the the where he gets his claim of being a wife beater from was more of like an outrage from like one or two comics. Yeah, it's it was, always it was the a couple same. of panels, a couple of comics where the uh, the writers weren't and the the artists weren't exactly in simpatico. So the art, you know. The writer said, oh, yeah, and he just sort of pushes her aside, and the artist went, oh, he smacks her in the face. Okay, and I'll do that. And it may <laughs> yeah. not have been necessarily exactly what they wanted, and they weren't thinking about the future. 
But if I remember correctly, that was also something that was latched onto by an artist and a writer later on and expanded on it to make it like uh, a bit more of uh, a part of his character in a weird way. But it was still in such a way that it was more of an internet furor over it, not any actual like domestic abuse in any yeah, real way. That was the Mark Miller run that... Um, oh, we were talking about the, uh, yeah, the unpleasant ultimates. Yeah. Mm. Um, and it, let's, let's, let's move on from the early, early productions. It, it, yeah. um, I, I'm sure pretty much everyone would have liked to see the Edgar Wright version as well as maybe not necessarily instead of what we actually eventually got. Yeah, if they could put it on as a DVD extra, that would be great. Yeah. Um, and this is uh, running up the, uh, in the, the um, behind... The, uh, as we speak... It's not quite made the same amount of money as The Incredible Hulk, but it's only, what, the second weekend? Um, it's, it's currently on 226, The Incredible Hulk's 263, and that was relatively dismal for Marvel at the time, enough for them not to make another one. But, um, I mean, but more, only because Iron Man made such big bucks. But more importantly, Ant-Man made more money than Pixels this weekend. God. <laughs> Thank Christ. So... <laughs> Like, look, not going to talk about pixels. Nope, nope. nope. <laughs> but if you want to hear someone talk about pixels, movie Bob Chipman. I think pretty much everyone listening to this, if you want to hear, you'll already have heard it. But uh, yeah, he does a uh, Bob Chipman talking about pixels on YouTube. It's it's white hot fury, and it's it's quite cathartic. He doesn't lose it often. Yeah, no. He he's, he has a good run. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's the only person I know who can give rage such an artful. Uh, delivery. It kind of made me sad when when he, he raised about it because if you go back to my original forum post back in March when I first saw the trailer, it's everything I feared it would be. I literally said word for word exactly what I hoped it would not be, and it totally ended up being exactly that. Yeah, um, but we're not talking about that movie. We're not talking about that movie. <laughs> okay, so Hotel Transylvania Two. Now. <clears throat> Okay, so we've done your expectations. So starts the film starts off with a flashback, and this was extremely gratifying to watch because I'm a fiend for for uh, like older Marvel continuity, and we got to see Agent Carter, and yes. um, and uh, an aged Howard Stark played by the same chap who played him in uh, Iron Man Two. So great continuity there. It came up before Marvel Studios logo, so this is essentially a pre-credit sequence, yeah. much like the post-credits. So it's nice to see them realizing that with this character they were going to have to seed some history yeah. early on without it necessarily having to be exposition and this this wasn't this was really light on exposition um, this was much more a situation that they were just giving us a, a glimpse on um, an important moment in Hank Pym's past basically yeah. um, but it's loaded with um, with questions you know what is the pin particle? You know, as someone who wouldn't know that, you'd be asking that question. Why is it important that Shield want to get their hands on it and they're trying to recreate it in the same way that others have tried to recreate super soldier serums, for example? Mm. Um, and it speaks a lot to a lot of the personal relationships there, and it, it raises a load of questions about um, where Shields end up. We haven't yet seen the the. Um, founding of S.H.I.E.L.D. yet in Agent Carter, but it raises a lot of questions and kind of puts a nice sort of um, another flag in the ground along the line of where S.H.I.E.L.D.'s going to end up uh, getting to by by kind of, uh, you know, the phase one stage. Um, and yeah, I like the fact that they use John Slattery because it, it hints that they have, obviously with um, 
with Peggy Carter um, using the same actress all the way through and just aging and de-aging as, as necessary. Um, but with John Slattery and Dominic Cooper, it shows that they seem to have some kind of line in the sand where they're going to say, okay, beyond this point, John Slattery plays Howard, Howard Stark. Stark. Okay. Before this point, Dominic Cooper does. And hopefully they can maintain that without confusing anyone, which they seem to be at the moment. Yeah. Um, it also hinted that, uh, because of what you find out later in the film, it hints that there were people in S.H.I.E.L.D. who were either at that point already Hydra agents or susceptible to becoming Hydra agents yeah. right at the beginning, right at the top, oh, yeah. at the very earliest. Um, are you caught up on Carter? Uh, yeah, we finished it. Uh, James, are you? Yes, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, remember they showed Zola. Uh, yeah, Arnim Zola. Yeah, Stinger. Uh, so that was the establishment right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I th- I think in Winter Soldier he actually also says that he was there with the founding of Shield. Yeah. So it it was literally and yeah. like as it started and it was funny because as soon as that guy showed up I'm like, yeah he's Hydra, he'll <laughs> be back. Yeah. Um, yeah. I I love seeing Haley Atwell any time. Yeah. I, I I literally yelled out in in happiness when <laughs> yeah, she showed up on too. the screen. <laughs> so uh, I just I like I like when she shows up and it gave me a, a pause because I was like, wait a minute, nineteen eighty nine wasn't Howard when did Howard die? And I had to look yeah. it up. He yeah. actually dies two years after those events. Right. Um, Possibly with the Winter Soldier involved, maybe that's what's well, been rumored for Civil War. It's certainly something to do with Hydra. But yeah, so almost certainly that would be a good reason for Tony Stark to say wants to find and kill the Winter Soldier. Yes, indeed. Okay, um, and for Steve to stand in front of him and go no. By the way, if you ever get sick of Twitter, folks, uh, maybe just follow Haley Atwell and just watch her, her tweet updates because it is absolute sheer joy. She's one of the sunniest, most positive people, and all she ever does is tweet pictures of herself with fans being, you know, gushing and, and doing crazy things. She's very self-effacing, very self-deprecating, very charming, and she constantly like she gets sent stuff by fans, like long handwritten letters of you are such an inspiration to me and Agent Carter is is so wonderful and just the amount of love that she generates. It's it's um it's the opposite of Twitter most of the time. <laughs> uh so yeah, uh Haley Atwell, we salute you. You remember in X-Men 3, when you get the early um, uh, facial, like, de-aging on uh, Eric and Charles? Yeah. Uh, I actually think, in retrospect, that that was worth it. Because it looks like turd, but this <laughs> Un- was like... Uncanny Valley. The, yeah, Uncanny Valley as hell. This was like the first step, and now they're at the point where they can actually make that exact premise kind of work. And they had to have a really, like, cack-handed first step. And it just happened to be in a movie that would have been rubbish anyway, so you might as well start there. Um, because Michael Douglas is de-aging, and this is astonishing. Like, they took 30 years off the guy. Yeah, it's really good. And really, really good. he looks like Michael Douglas in Wall Street, basically. I think maybe that's the trick here is um, they've got a lot of reference points for what he would look like course, at that age. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, you do with Patrick Stewart, but it doesn't necessarily, therefore, look like Charles Xavier. Yeah. If you see what I, I mean, want, I, I know that's a weird way to put it. No, no, I get completely what you mean. Like as a young man, Patrick Stewart, I think he had he had black hair, didn't he? Yeah, 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 different guy. I wonder if they did something similar to how they aged Hallie Atwell in um, 
Winter uh, Soldier. Winter Soldier. Oh no, because that, that was that, rubbish. That was an actress. Well, that was an actress. Yeah. Um, older actress, and then they digitally over her face. Yeah, it didn't look that great. But again, I think that might have been a step in this. So that might have been. That might not have been uh, the actor standing there at all. It might have just been Michael Douglas yeah. recorded, and then an, another actor who looked similar enough with the hair and everything like that. Yeah. Maybe. Uh, unfortunately, in that case with uh, Winter Soldier, they uh, kind of ruin an incredibly emotional and important moment um, with their flashy, look, look, we can do it with this special computer overlaying. And you can't tell. You can tell. You can't tell. <laughs> um, and they kind of, like, it's one of the only down points in an otherwise flawless movie. And the... Ah, that that drives me nuts every time I see that because yeah. I can't not think that it's just a weird superimposed mouth on top of another woman. It's like, it's almost like like it's it's the same principle as the Saddam Hussein animation in South Park. But, <laughs> uh, you know, Alex, it didn't bother me before, but I'm sure it will when now. I go back and watch that movie. <laughs> yeah, so no, thank no, you for that. Because <laughs> Haley Atwell's lo- lovely eyes are hovering about in the middle of that that poor lady's face, and I completely understand why they did it. Um, but uh, there is a lot to be said still for the old Back to the Future way of doing things, and and you know you can see that person through the performance, even though the it never seems quite right, but somehow with the Michael Douglas thing, they kind of got it working. So again, maybe, maybe this should be more sort of like um, practiced in rubbish movies rather than good ones. (laughs) I think part of why it worked so well in this one though, is the fact that you have a group of people who've been um, tweaked in some way. It may, they may not all be in the same room, but you, you're looking at Douglas in the flashback and thinking, well, I know he doesn't look like that. And you're looking at Hayley Atwell and thinking, well, I know she doesn't look like that, but there wasn't that feeling of disconnect. It's still them. And the uh, the young guy who's in the flashback and then turns up older later on, they've thought of everything. You know, they've, they've put the padding on him to thicken him up because people do get thicker as they get older. Especially um, and, Well, indeed. Um, so it, it kind of, everything seems to feel that little bit more organic than it did in... Uh, x-men where it was just like basically we just want them to look less wrinkled which is not the only thing that changes when you get older yeah um these are all superficial details what they do in this one scene is really expertly within the space of a couple of minutes show you hank pym's character as he was then so that you can then work backwards to that when you meet him later and there's this really great kind of the hot-headedness of him and you kind of like as he left the room i was like no 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 no! i want to see the rest of this guy's story up till we get here so I and mean, that was a really great way of whetting our appetite in terms of him maybe it's my lack of actor knowledge but i gotta ask am i the only one that briefly thought i'm sorry i don't even know what the other actor's name is but the hydra guy was actually robert redford de-aged like i i was i thought that's where they were going i figured out that it wasn't because i I do know what robert redford looks like well enough but alexander pierce i thought it's that yeah i thought i thought it was going to be pierce and then it wasn't that would have been interesting that would have been oh i wonder if um it it would but uh, in winter soldier he's a diplomat that then is recruited to the council not shield so that it would have been a nice touch but i think the thing that stopped me is i for the life of me i cannot remember this actor's name but i've seen him in other stuff before so i recognized the face who it was and and didn't think it was someone else but um but yeah it would have been a um, martin donovan yes 
But well, his his character though, Mitchell uh, Mitchell Carson, he is from the comics. He tried to get his hands on the Ant Man suit. Um, he was a Shield agent, but uh, he didn't turn out to be a Hydra agent in Shield. He just turned out to be a raving sociopath, and a serial <laughs> killer, who used his Shield connections to hide up all of his murder victims. Uh, so needless to say, he didn't get his hands on the Ant Man suit. But he is from uh, the comic canon. I'm ignorant of the of the comics in this regard. Are the cross particles? Is that like? Is there another set of re- reducing particles? I, I thought uh, Pym was the only thing. No, uh, the cross particles were just Pym particles. The cross was just like I'm going to name them after me because you named them after you, and I'm a raging douchebag. So <laughs> right, right. Was right. a raging douchebag. Can we just get him <laughs> out of the way quickly? Um, sure. Cross. Uh, and he was cross most of the time, which is appropriate. Um, Marvel still have a problem with villains. He was fairly shallow. I felt like the moment he stepped off screen, nothing happened to him. He just stood in a room, and then when he came back on screen, he carried on ranting. Uh, weakest part of the film. <laughs> and um, that's about it, basically, for me. Anyone want to give some dimension to cross? There was some mention at some point that exposure to the particles in the experimental process was changing him, but we didn't see enough of that. And and Hank himself even says, like, oh, I saw myself in you. I saw too much of myself in you. So it yeah. gives us the, the idea that Cross has always been yeah. this jerk. This, I mean, okay, yeah. he's ambitious. Yeah. He is hungry for power. He would be great for Hydra. Uh, but he's – I don't know. Like, it, there really wasn't anything. I almost feel like they tried to – uh, excuse his behavior, yeah. but then he just was always that way. So there's no yeah. way you can really excuse. He's that. basically Obadiah Stane again. Yeah. Same yeah, situation. Basically. He's jealous and of the guy who really is the genius. He wants to be rich yeah. and blah blah blah. I was going to say there's a scene missing, um, but I don't know if it's cut or if it was never filmed because they talk about the uh, Hank says about the particles affecting the brain, um, and then at the end of the movie, uh, Hope says the particles are affecting your brain. And we never once see him have any interaction with the particles separate from um, the others. He puts on the suit at the end. We don't know that he put on the suit before then because why would he? It would kill him. Mm. Yeah. So there's something, there's a whole thing. Either it's just bad writing or there's something missing. That bugged me too. Yeah. No, it feels like there were two different versions of this character. And there's several points during this film where you can kind of imagine that might be the case. But it's whether you're reading too much into it or I'm reading too much into it because I know that a script was taken and altered and, you know, essentially two different scripts exist that kind of one overwrote the other. Um, but, yeah, the, um, the the specific thing that Hank says is um, he doesn't wear the suit anymore because the particles affect him. The helmet, I think the idea is that you wear that to try and protect yourself um, mm. as well. And, yeah, that line from Hope just came out of nowhere because, as you say, Mike, we have no there's no evidence that he has come into contact with these particles because he's very explicitly not doing so until he knows that Mm. he can control the particle in reference to biological matter. Um, It was was a strange oversight. So so, so either in the editing room, they just plum forgot or somebody wanted to take it out and the director or whoever was in charge at that point of the editing said, no, 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 we need to leave it in to whatever reason. Because that seems like an argument to make that, that he's more a sympathetic character who's just being affected by something, you know, um, exterior. But up until that point, he's shown to be manipulative. Um, there's, there's a in reference to the cross particle versus pin particle. There's a moment where you see um, a, a little model made out, and it's got cross technologies on the front of it instead of yeah. um, 
instead of Pym on, on the name of the building. So mm-hmm. there is this notion that he's ousted Hank from the um, company because Hank won't, because he's got the sense that Hank is lying to him about the Pym particle. Um, and there's this really, really weird relationship where you can see why Darren would want to keep Hank around because he sees him as a father figure. He's got th- these kind of quote unquote unresolved daddy issues, um, which just is ticking a box there for that character, basically. Yeah. Um, Marvel, I mean, pretty much everyone in Marvel has yeah, daddy exactly. issues. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it's like, wouldn't it have been great for this character to not be one of them and maybe try and make something of him? But it was just easier to, right. to make him that. Um, but I'm not I sure think- why Hank keeps putting up with with him if hank's out of the um out of the the company he doesn't need to be putting himself in darren's presence yeah. um, uh, and yet he accepts the the invitation to come to the presentation right at the beginning of the film that seems like a really odd choice no no because hank is he feels incredibly guilty at what cross is trying to do and he wants to be there to keep an eye on him because even though hank won't put on the suit and i feel like when he said uh that the suit had affected him he wasn't talking about the pim particles i think he was talking about janet's disappearance and yeah. that's why he wouldn't put the suit back on in my mind that's what he was talking about yeah, yeah sure. I, um, I took it as a combination he, he that was clear in the subtext but he also grabbed his leg um so i think he, he was just implying uh, he's just physically too old yeah, uh, but I, I thought that the reason that Hank kept showing up whenever an invitation was sent and he kept going there was because he felt some personal guilt, that he needed to be there to keep an eye on this guy and to see what's going on. I would agree, except that Hank has a surveillance set up in his house and has the ability to fly ants anywhere to see what they're doing because he's still using the ants at that point, even though he's not in the suit. Um <laughs> And and he's got hope there as well. So it seems like he's got all the tools in play, and all he's doing by going is feeding Darren's need to to deal with him as a as an antagonizing father figure. And, and while yes, but the in that very first scene, whenever he walks in, he was caught off guard by the yellow jacket suit and by even the model with Cross's name where Pim's name was. So he clearly doesn't have surveillance everywhere. But he yeah. could. I I get your point. But yeah. Yeah. I think there's probably a couple of reasons for um, his continued interaction with Cross, because as you say, it is largely unnecessary. Mm. But they're kind of they're, they're plot the way I see them anyway. They're plot level and um, also plotting level. Mm. Um, at plot level, I you obviously see that Hank would want to keep abreast of any potential development on what was happening with the particles, because mm. if by by chance or by design, Cross has come across a way to uh, get into that subatomic level so that he can get Janet back. He'd take it, regardless of how yeah. um, potentially dangerous his relationship with that person was. And we see as the narrative progresses that having hope involved is not the same thing as wanting to maintain a positive relationship or at least as positive as it can be with Darren himself so that he can use that technology if and when it becomes available. The second thing is that I think they've possibly fallen a little bit into the trap that they do so often of having the villain be a mirror image of the hero. And we are um, not so that, different you and I. Exactly <laughs> and that's the case in terms of, of powers obviously is that you know the whole shrinking thing they both have it however if scott is the good son then darren has to be the bad son and they can't maintain that if hank cuts him off yeah Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, and also going back to the very first scene, Hank specifically says that he broke into Howard Stark's facility in the Ant-Man suit to steal the pin particles that, that Stark was working on. So he's really all about being hands-on in whatever's going on. I think mm-hmm. like as just as a character, you know, flaw, if you will. I think as well the uh, his obsession with getting Janet back is possibly an influence on why he won't put the suit back on. Mm. Because I, I think deep down he feels that if he put the suit back on, he would not be able to resist the temptation to go in there and look for her. Yeah. His involvement with Cross could have to do with that missing scene too. Like the, the Cross being having some kind of redemption point that... You know, yeah. maybe he actually mm. really does he has a reason to feel responsible more than just, you know, I hired a psycho. Maybe he really wasn't always. <laughs> but maybe it makes it harder then for for them to just like kill him at the end because that's what they do. Just wink him out of. Like, well, well, actually, I can't remember what happens to him at the end. Does he just go? Subatomic, he wings out of existence. Yeah. Limbs start just shrinking. Oh yeah, yeah it was gross. Yeah. <laughs> almost a singularity point in the middle. Yeah. East just being sucked into. It's really yeah. Weird. But they totally kill him in the same way they kill Obadiah. And um, yeah. there's that that same level of like threat Obadiah has with uh, Pepper. Remember that uh, bit where she Pepper's trying to steal from him um, in uh, the tail end of uh, Iron Man. Um, but it, uh, Alec, sorry, um, Cross has with um, uh, Hope. He's, you know, yeah. kind of like they, they obviously share a more personal relationship, but um, like he's there. There is a quiet, not none too subtle um, intimidation going on. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the other thing is that he also slaughters a lamb, which is a really great way to get kids to hate him. Yeah. <laughs> it was like oh, over a little lamb. Cross. Over, I over thought you again. loved me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think everyone like gasped when he turned that man into a blob of snot as well. Like he just sort of, like just wiped him off the map. I think they gasped more with the lamb. Though. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. It's like killing your rival. Oh yeah, we can totally go it with was that. A but a man lamb with a family, but a lamb. <laughs> Meanwhile, let's go out to lunch. Lamb chops again. Nom nom nom. <laughs> well, Hope really sells that too because yeah. she's just as mortified as we were to see yeah. that he was yeah. experimenting on these lambs. Okay. So Scott Lang, and by extension, Maggie, his ex-wife, or is she actually his ex-wife? She's referred to in the credits as Maggie Lang. Okay, his ex-wife. Paxton, his ex-wife's new, what do they call them these days, Bay, and... uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, they they are married, aren't they? Didn't you say you married? Mm -hmm. Uh, No, they're engaged. uh, Oh, you're married. Yeah, and Cassie, uh, his uh, actual biological daughter. So, uh, yeah, go for it. Scott Lang, played by Paul Word. One of the most likable chaps in Hollywood. <laughs> I was incredibly impressed by Paul Rudd. I've, I've seen him do uh, pure comedy roles before, and I, I really like him in them, but this is the first time I've really seen him do a, a, a proper central role. Mm. Um, I was just going to say, yeah, you see him in a lot of ensemble casts for, for comedy work, and, yeah, it, it seemed like a lot of... Um, a lot to put on his shoulders in this to me for some reason. I'm not sure why, because I, I really like him in everything I've seen him in. Um, but he has a, a massive amount of charisma that he puts into, I mean, generally anyway, but in this character, you really see why, um, despite the fact that he's gone to prison, his ex-wife and his daughter obviously still, you know, he's, he's never portrayed as, as being... A deadbeat um, scumbag. 
Yeah, exactly. They want to you, see him. Yeah. Uh, the, the way she puts it, actually. I, I, by the way, I love Judy Greer. She is fan bloody testing in everything. Uh, even like Jurassic World, when she turned up, I, I wanted to, you know, her. Frankly, I wanted her to be on the island. Um, but uh, the. Uh, the, the way she put it was that your daughter thinks you're a hero. All you have to do is be that, you know, the, the, the man that she expect, she thinks you are, which sounds like a lot. But ultimately, um, considering her actual expectations, uh, you know, as Sharon has said, it's not too big an ask. So they're not seen as being ridiculously unreasonable either. That's that's well balanced. Yeah. I thought it was particularly impressive, actually, and this is possibly slipping into uh, discussing Judy Greer's character, mm. that they that demand that she, that he pay the child support and her refusal to let him see Cassie mm. unless the child support was paid, that would have been very easy to play her as, as a, a ball-breaking bitch. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. who was seen as you know this this vicious obstacle in keeping him from his daughter but they actually maintained that relationship as relatively amicable which is really really unusual yeah yeah, yeah. and all the way through it's it's not like there's a there's a change in that relationship towards the you know the very end scene uh, where they're around the dinner table it's like no you, you see that she is seems perfectly happy with the state of their relationship from the beginning they're still friendly she still seems to have you know plenty of respect from etc um it's just that no this is a thing um that that he needs to do and it's almost and and the fact that he doesn't blame her for that decision um either means that we're never put as you say sharon at odds with with her position um it's it's almost like no this is the situation you know the situation you knew it when you went into prison and this is the situation now Let's you know. She, in a way, she's helping him to get his life back on track. And, mm, yeah. And the source of conflict is actually Paxton. He's um, uh, he's, he's not making things worse, but because he has very strong feelings against Scott, um, he is able to create uh, tension and exacerbate things. Uh, whereas they would be a little more amicable, as as you guys say. Even I mean, as as he says, it's my house, and obviously this is uh, the uh, the woman he's uh, now in a long term relationship with. He absolutely you know, and he cares for Cassie as well. It's he comes at it as a as a human being too, and and even though he's something of a dick to uh, Scott, uh, you can completely see his side of things. But the presence of all four of them sort of embroiled in this, all wanting. Um, similar but different things or, or like different barriers in, in terms of what they want uh, creates a, a really sort of good amount of tension that you can sort of like see that you want to get this situation resolved. You don't want it to necessarily be too easy, but uh, th- this is something to be overcome. It would be so easy for the stepdad in this relationship to be the bad guy yeah, who's there yeah. to be ousted, etc. as well. And it is it was wonderful to see that that wasn't the case. Here are three adults who all want the very best for Cassie yeah. and they're going and they're making sure that they're not getting involved in, in interpersonal conflicts unnecessarily. Um, and, and there's not with um, Bobby Cannavale's character Paxton, there's not a sense that he's doing what he's doing at the party to be the alpha male and just to push him out. He's, he's actually doing it because he, he knows what the situation that's going to occur. And he, he knows that, um, Judy Greer's character has has 
got an expectation that needs to be met before. There's no sense that he's trying to keep um, Scott away from Cassie unnecessarily. He's just upholding what he knows the situation to be. Mm. Um, and because he's a police officer and Scott obviously is a convicted criminal, um, there is that tension there, but it never feels like he's being um, malicious about it, I guess, yeah. is the best way to put it. There's no, mm. no malcontent there. It's just he's just carrying out the wishes of, of Cassie's mum, basically. It kind of reminds me of, uh, you, anybody seen Liar Liar? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Jim Carrey movie? Yeah, the Jim Carrey movie. That he's divorced from his, and sep- yeah, divorced from his uh, wife, Audrey, and they have a five-year-old son, Max. And Carrie Elwes is the sort of, the, the new boyfriend. And it's the exact oh, yeah. same situation, only mm. Elwes is really friendly with Fletcher. Hey, Gipper, one, two, three, four, five, and one for luck. He struck the child. Did you see that? The, uh, <laughs> but at the end of the film, Kerry ends up getting his ex-wife back. And then the uh, family is reunited and Kerry Elwes does the decent thing and goes off. And I think it takes, they, they add an extra year to it. So Elwes leaves and then a year later, Max turns six. And at the very end, Jim Carrey's kissing his wife again. And the family is restored to two life. Mm. This was made in the 1990s when divorce was really really seriously affecting the nation and mrs doubtfire had the balls pardon the pun to actually go you know what guys sometimes the divorced families don't get back together again in fact frequently the divorced and sometimes that's the better outcome yeah and that it's not necessarily a balance that needs to be restored in that way something needs to happen that basically means that you guys can all be in each other's lives but that doesn't necessarily mean totally restoring the equilibrium although in liar liar the problems are all because fletcher is a total dick and he lies to everyone including his wife and his son so when he stops doing that it actually does kind of stand to reason that 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 would be healed and mended but in this case there were other reasons why things didn't work out between scott and uh, uh, maggie so it's not something that can just be oh fixed you know? and they never really go into them either because it's mm. it's pretty apparent from um cassie's interaction with um paxton that that relationship has actually been there for quite some time yeah. this is not the the behavior of just a latest boyfriend who stepped into the the uh, the void yeah. and they're living in his house so that's obviously been going on for a while there's a depth there that um, that Scott has respect for, so it's obviously quite serious. Um, and there's never any kind of backbiting or anything about the reasons why he and Maggie split up in the first place. Yeah. yeah. Well, if anything, the comparison between Liar Liar and this really just shows how um, the family unit has been treated differently by movies and, and media yeah. in general. Because Liar Liar from the 90s, like you said, everything has to go back to that nominal nuclear family unit. Yeah. While this one kind of shows and allows a more realistic, um, complex family situation. Yeah. So here's the thing. I have never seen a movie with Paul Rudd, have no background with him at all. You never seen Clueless. Nope. You never seen Knocked Up. Nope. And 40 year old virgin. See Clueless and Knocked Up. Those are great. Wait, wait. I think I may have seen 40 year old virgin technically, but I remember nothing about it. So. Have you seen the object of my affection? Nope. (laughs) Also known as Paul um, Rudd. (laughs) Well, I also did not know who Scott Lang was because uh, when Ant-Man – because I, I read about him more Hank recently Hank. after seeing it 
in, in anything I talked to anybody about, Ant-Man was always Hank Pym. So I didn't even know Scott Lang existed. So for me, I was like, this character's awesome. He's complex. He's realistic. And he's he, this guy plays him really well. I enjoy his kind of dry sense of humor and his odd sense of timing a lot of the times. Uh, so I, I really liked him from somebody who has no background at all in either character or actor. Well, most people going in won't know. That's the, again, like with Guardians of the Galaxy, they knew nobody knew who Ant Man was. It, they used it to their advantage. In fact, even in the marketing, they were just like, "This guy's tiny, and he could stand on Iron Man's shoulder." That's the kind of universe we're talking about here, and um, it's uh, it, you know the, the fact that this that movie is so appealing. It's it's not going to make Iron Man money. Um, and it's never going to be one of like the the the, the majority's favourites, but it it can stand toe to toe with uh, several of those sequels. Uh, well, saying that though, having not seen it, and I'll just throw this in there now, it is now I believe my second favourite Marvel movie. Wow! What was your first yes. favourite game? Guardians of the Galaxy, Good without choice. a question. <laughs> um, th- that's great. I mean, basically the can can you elaborate on why because that's a fairly personal thing obviously uh, well i mean I, yeah if you want to talk Go about it right now uh so all of the other marvel movies like have kind of followed a pretty formulaic script and this one did too for the most part where it's like the third act is always a big like over the top action scene mm-hmm. but this movie was a heist film and it was so much tighter and uh, there were so few wasted moments even the the nods to other parts of the continuity felt right and natural Mm. all of the characters felt complex and like realized with the exception of cross but you see him so little it's almost like instead of saying well he isn't well written it was more like i really wonder what happened to make him that kind of person in this tapestry of complex individuals Mm. all around him um and there's just something about how that final fight scene is a parody of the -the over-the-top action But is actually so personal because it's it's more for Cassie's life, really, because I'm sure Cross wasn't going to do good things if he walked out of there with that girl. And it's like, OK, personal stakes, but we still get to see somebody throwing trains at each other. Hmm. And it's it, it was just so, so wonderful to just to, to witness. I walked out of it uh, so much happier than I walked in. Uh, now, other things, I had a really bad week leading up to it. So. Yeah. It was it was a very nice way to end uh, the week, so I, I may be a little biased on that, but just I can't point to any aspect of it that I didn't love. Now I would say that Winter Soldier is probably still the best, like mechanically, it's probably still the best made movie. But as far as my favorites, mm. Guardians is number one, and Ant Man is now number two. Wow. The only other thing I was going to say about Cassie was I was really charmed by the fact that this little girl was just such a, like, you know, she, was, she wasn't your stereotypical little girl. She was missing many front teeth, which is the sort of thing that, you know, you, you notice about kids when they get to that age. Like, the, the, the teeth just start dropping out of their head. And that suggests that she's also fairly active because you don't miss, lose that many teeth all in one go unless you fall out of a tree. And, but also the fact that when he gives her this disgusting bunny rabbit... She loves it. Moment. Yeah. That's just so Such charming. Reminded me exactly of, of my daughter, Aww. my eldest daughter. <laughs> <laughs> You're a lucky, lucky chap. Uh, she also it's reminded a wonderful me of life. And, and it, um, <laughs> it also speaks to the fact that Cassie has very different relationships with all three of the adults true, in her life true. because both Paxton and um, 
Maggie it is, that's Judy Greer's character, isn't it? Both look at that, and, and with Judy Greer's character, you're not quite sure if the reason she wants to take it away from her when she's she's going to sleep with it is because it's from her dad. Probably not, because we've not seen anything to indicate that. It's just, this is an ugly thing, don't you want the one that, you know, the nice teddy bear over there or whatever. Yeah. Um, but no, you know, Scott Lang gets the fact that his daughter would love this. You know, he knows that any other kid would probably hate it, but she will love it. And it's just really nice. On that note, tiny aside, um, whenever well, we've been watching the Rocky movies this week, uh, Lara, Lara and I, and um, she's been, I've been teaching her to sort of like dance around and, and do little punches. And uh, like, oh, like, she's been requesting it. I, I've been like, yeah, you'll hurt yourself. And she's like, no, 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 I need to know. And every time we walk past Bernardo's, there's these boxing gloves in the window, giant adult boxing gloves. And she's gone, can I have those? And I'm like, no, not really. They're for adults. And then we went past it today on after Inside Out. And she started crying. I'm like, what? She went, they sold the boxing gloves and replaced them with stupid Barbie. <laughs> and it was a Barbie game. And I said, they were too big for you. But if you really care that much, we'll get you some kiddie boxing gloves. No problem. But, uh, yeah, she's got the eye of the tiger. Excellent. Uh, Speaking more on Cassie, though, I think that especially that rabbit moment shows how well her character was written and acted because she actually felt like a child, to me at least. I mean, most movies just treat children as shorter, dumber adults, while like they they kind of like miss a lot of what makes a child a child. And I, I was like, yeah, that's a believable kid in my mind. Yeah. Like, or they go to the other extreme and they make them um, human teddy bears who don't actually have any interaction with anybody other than to do as they're told, yeah. which kids yep. don't do. Or like in Terminator Salvation, make them mute, then you don't even have to get them to act. <laughs> Brilliant. It helped that she was actually a good actress. Like she, she was. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. She was. She was genuine, believable. You know, it drives me nuts. Anytime that you get a kid on on screen, big or small, and they can't act, it's just like kids are born actors. You almost have to look. For the ones that can't do it. <laughs> the worst, no, no, this one's too good. Send them away. The worst kid actor ever. If you've ever seen The Golden Compass, there's one kid who gives one line, which is, don't Billy. And it's like, we did 21 takes. And that's the best <laughs> one. <laughs> it's early on in the film. You'll know it when you see it next time, folks. Um, speaking of daughters, because there's, there's, there's two father-daughter relationships in this, which is a wonderful parallel. And also unusual for a superhero movie. Um, because uh, Scott... Uh, sorry, there's Scott and Cassie, and also Hank and Hope. And um, I already, I've, I've loved Evangeline Lilly since the first episode of Lost, and uh, loved her as Tariel, and now that she's part of the MCU and looks like the part to be ongoing MCU, mm-hmm. um, just fell in love with Hope Van Dyne immediately. And uh, Chipman actually mentioned that like her presence on screen seems to be this running gag about why can't Marvel get a female superhero? So obviously the... Uh, <laughs> The stinger at the end, sorry, yeah. uh, was a really satisfying, yes, at long last moment. But it was also a bit of a, aren't you just showing us that we didn't get this character to her full potential now? Yeah. You know, it, it's a reminder that this was another male superhero when you had a perfectly good female one right there. Honestly speaking, that also that brings me to another thing, which is that Ant-Man itself as a film is more like Guardians of the Galaxy than it is like yeah, Iron Man true. in that it's an ensemble piece. Uh, for the heist at the end, everyone's taking part in that. Everyone's giving a bit of themselves yeah. for that. Yeah. Uh, and just because Scott's doing the running around and the jumping and the, and the kicking, uh, he'd be so, absolutely... Yeah 
useless without everyone else helping him. Yeah. It's, it's the group, um, uh, you know, basically aiding him. He's not James Bond. And uh, if he is, he's not James Bond when uh, Bond goes in and then bucks authority and won't listen to M and company at, uh, back at uh, HQ. He's James Bond who, if he's not listening, is going to be dead in a second. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Hope Van Dyne, excellent, strong, you know, varied character, smart, female, just identifiable at the same time, very human. Um, you know, that Marvel do women better than they do villains. <laughs> now give so us a female good. villain then. That would be good. <laughs> the enchantress, please. Maybe they can manage that. Wasp is a is a big deal in Avengers terms. Like we said, she, uh, she along with Hank was a founding member, and she's a vital female component on the uh, team. Uh, and we we have up to now really had a lot of guys, and mm. that it. Again, it pisses me off. It pisses Lyra off like crazy when, when she sees Avengers merchandise. She's like, where's Black Widow? I want Black Widow stuff. And it's like, well, you can have Thor and Cap and Iron Man and Hulk. I want Black Widow stuff. Okay. I'll ask them again. So this is what, I mean, it's, it's important if, for, from just for money, just, just for merch and money and just getting that up on the screen and then on the shelves. It's it's important. It cannot be and, and female heroes. I I I got some flack for the um uh the the ten most important uh, superheroes of all time podcast episode because the original artwork had a whole bunch of male fem- uh, male heroes and I could have put a bunch of females in there. I was trying to sort of show the uh, uh the the world as it seemed in marketing, but obviously if that's your first impression, you don't listen to the show, you're going to take offence, and that's understandable. So I swapped out a hell of a lot of them for uh, female heroes because frankly the 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 playing field needs to be more even. Now we talk about this every goddamn time. Yeah, but uh, oh, but hope was a great step in the right direction. Absolutely, hope, and, and something that that Ant Man like I walked out of Ant Man thinking that you know hope's a really great complex character, clearly going to be the Wasp in the next one. Very strong. Mm-hmm. I, I almost hope the next one isn't named Ant Man too. I hope it's named Wasp. Um, it, you know, Cassie was really really good. Everybody like all the female characters were treated really well. They were like complex, realistic. And, uh, I mean, if Haley Atwell was in there. That's always a good thing on my books. Uh, but for a character whose biggest, uh, like, known entity on the internet is that he's a misogynistic wife beater, <laughs> to take that character and then make a movie that might be the strong, like, one of the strongest ones in the MCU as far as female characters is concerned, I thought was, like, brilliant. Yeah. I loved it. And uh, there, there was... The fragile relationship between her and Hank uh, was um, another thing that... There was a lot of things that were unspoken between them, which was a really great sort of the, the, the silences were um, <laughs> the silences were well written, <laughs> <laughs> well played. Yes. Um, and uh, I, I, you know what, Michael Douglas never been a favourite actor of mine. Did not expect anything from him. Again, confounded my expectations. Pleased with him here. He was yeah, it's fantastic. From from that opening scene, you really got from that sort of nugget of who this character is, it told you a lot, but they built on it more and more and more. And every scene he was in, you felt there was something to why they were showing you that scene Mm. in terms of developing his character and bringing you up to speed on what he'd been through, having tried to be a a superhero, um, one of the first superheroes in the the Marvel Universe. Um, Let's face it, he comes along not long after Captain America. Yeah, um, it was was 62, uh, which is like before... 
um, I think that was pre-X-Men, which was 63, and uh, after the Fantastic Four, but only just. Yeah, so in, in, in terms of the actual cinematic universe as well, you know, um, everyone else has come later, but here's an older character who was doing this and turned away from it for obvious reasons of the trauma he went through, not just physically, but mentally, um, with everything that happened and what he felt was his responsibility. And so then you really, uh, as you get towards the end of the film um, and the scenes where he and Hope kind of... Um, you know, start to understand one another better, it makes much more sense of, of the beginning of the film, the way he was acting, because he blames himself for absolutely everything that's gone wrong in Hope's life. Um, yeah. Not necessarily, and obviously he then comes to the realisation that that's, he shouldn't be doing that. You know, Janet was allowed to make that decision. That was the decision she made, but he can't stop blaming himself. Um, yeah. Which is understandable all the way through, but yeah, there's... it. it it's really interesting how it kind of scene on scene builds his character, his relationship with Hope and Hope's character all kind of simultaneously. Mm. And the also the, the 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 fact that Janet was an absence in the film originally annoyed me because I was I was feeling like, oh, I really wanted there to be more from from Janet Pym. Obviously this is this mysterious character. But because she's not there and we only get to see her for that brief second her absence actually characterizes her. She is a gaping hole in Hank's life and Hope's life. And so um, there's this this yearning for her, which, you know, on some level, the audience, depending on how engaged they are, will feel. Yeah. They did a really good job in general of making the whole universe feel lived in and mm-hmm. not necessarily like the MCU but just this corner the the Ant-Man section for a movie that wasn't hey, what was the running time on this one it wasn't it wasn't one of their longest ones. Uh, 148 minutes or so I think yeah. so yeah so I, I mean it, it was it was fine but it, it wasn't excessive and yet it still felt you know you, you came out knowing exactly where everybody stood in this mm. universe as part of it there's also a nice parallel there with the way that uh, uh, Janet went out with uh, Captain America, both in the, the way he was presented in the film and in the original comic incarnation. He oft- frequently ends up clinging to a rocket bound for uh, America and uh, actually <laughs> redirects it into the sea. And, and it's, it's almost exactly the same as that. Uh, he, you know, it's, uh, I mean, the same principle in First Avenger. So uh, yep. that ties her up with that level of heroism. Um, um, I should just quickly say I think I just said 148 minutes I meant an hour and 48 minutes oh, of course, or yeah. 108 that, that would have been a lengthy Sorry, just, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. just to clear, clear that up because that yeah. doesn't sound like a short film yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well since we're talking about Hank there was another thing um, that I wanted to talk about a little bit is in the comics Hank and Tony are opposites but in the movie Hank and Howard yeah. became kind of opposites while they're both brilliant scientific minds when uh when Hank discovered, you know, his big creation, instead of being like, all right, that's awesome. I'll give it to these people to make things or hide it in a vault or something and then make something else like Howard did. He said, you know what? Superhero. Yeah. And again, it goes into like his uh, hands on approach to things. Yeah. And I, I love that um, that dichotomy, even though it's only there for a brief moment in the beginning, knowing about Howard, as we do from the previous movies from Agent Carter. He's not someone like when he has to go and get his hands dirty, it is the absolute last resort. Yeah. Hmm. While Hank being an opposite in a lot of ways, he 
is more than happy to go and get his hands dirty. And he probably I'm mean, think of all the other creations he could have come up with had he just stayed in the lab. Mm. But instead, we just have the one tiny hands on. Uh, exactly. <laughs> what I was going to say next was actually about uh, Louise, David, and Kirk. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they. This is, seems to be like Marvel go, looking at the Fast and Furious films and going, "Oh, it doesn't have to be a bunch of white folk all the time." The <laughs> the instant like the, the the Fast and Furious movies have a major market penetration outside of just your average white cinema goer and. Damn straight we need decent, identifiable uh, um, support characters from different ethnicities. And uh, Louise, Dave, and Kurt uh, uh, were um, – what was it? it was, one of them was Russian, wasn't he? Or uh, Eastern the European. Eastern European or yeah. Russian, yeah. Um, Russian Dave was African-American or some similar uh, ethnicity and Louise was uh, Hispanic. Um, and they were all criminals. And they were all criminals, but – but there is a but there. But yeah, they were all criminals. But uh, they uh, um, are all portrayed as people as well, not just you know. I am a criminal. Yeah, that defines me as as a person. Luis, in particular, the the amount of stuff Luis does with his life makes me feel like I am not leading a rich enough existence. <laughs> Especially the art gallery at the end. I was like, you know, of course I'm, I'm into neo-cubism. Like, whoa! I, I love the fact that uh, Luis, specifically uh, played by Michael Peña, defied expectations as a character. Yes, yeah. I yeah. think that's the thing. Over the length of the film, it's slightly... Un- so the scene towards the end where Luis says, oh, I'm being a good guy and it feels good, that's a little bit sort of like... Uh, oh, Okay, that's a bit on the nose for showing his character turned around. Mm. Um, but yeah, they, also the backing up, backing up. It's like nah. At this point, you probably would try and help at this stage. It's like let's <laughs> let's wheel them backwards out of the movie, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> um, but when I when um, Scott walks into that room and they clearly want him to take on a job right at the beginning, it made me very uneasy that the the white guy amongst the criminals is the highly educated mm. being Robin Hood's criminal who de- tried to do good because he saw a wrong being yeah. committed. Being coerced and by one, uh, immigrant criminals who've come to America just to steal. It looked very awkward. Yeah, that had um, my back up from the word go. It took a lot of yeah. recovery from that. Yeah. But, oh. you, but you're right, Alex, especially Luis, but, but with, with the other guys as well, you got a sense of who they were as people and they didn't, to me, and I'm hardly an authority on this, they didn't, by the end, feel like the stereotypes that I was incredibly worried they were going to yeah. be at the beginning. Uh, that would, the negative stereotypes, I should say. Yeah, that's uh, that, that sort of thing has happened in, in other movies before, in sloppily written movies, uh, and uh, it, it would have felt wrong for them to suddenly turn up in Marvel films since they're trying to kind of push forwards a little bit more. They're, they're not the most progressive uh, filmmaking studio out there, but they're, you know, they're... It's baby steps, baby steps with these yeah. guys. They, they, you know, Peter Parker's just been cast. He's a little white boy, but that does not preclude Miles at some point in the future. Yeah, yeah. kind of. The, the, for a start, I mean, they're basically going back to their earliest original classic incarnations of all of these characters. You know, because once those guys, they're, they're playing the long game here. Once those guys um, move on, they can uh, recast the roles 
uh, in in different and more diverse characters. Just I'm surprised that we haven't heard more rumblings yet about some of the new ones, like Lady Thor. I I, I was really hoping that we'd have heard something about that mm-hmm. already. I it, I think, in all seriousness, they're going to just like keep us focused on the uh, the the actors that we know and love as they're here. And then the moment that basically they're bringing in new folks, they will make a big goddamn deal about it. Mm. And I'm still holding out for Falcon as Captain America. Plus, that retains a sense of it being a genuine shock when, yeah. when not if, when someone ends up either stepping down or yeah. potentially dying. You know, it leaves it as a shock. And then the aftermath is when they make a big deal yeah. of who's going to be taken. I mean, Marvel over. could come balls out and say, well, we all know Steve can't be Cap forever. But why? Yeah, exactly. Why would you yeah, do why, that? Why do that? Why would you put a full stop, you know, at some point? Preemptively, in the future, yeah. Preemptively, yeah. yeah. Um, but that does bring me to Falcon, who was a delight to suddenly see. I noticed that uh, he was in the uh, um, credits list, but I thought he'd just be turning up at the end, some sort of link to uh, Civil War. P.S. Mission accomplished. But um, <laughs> to actually get him a, uh, a little section in the uh, uh, earlier part of the film. and uh, A great scene. Yeah. To, great scene. to put two characters of very different powers and different mindsets with different things they want to accomplish but don't necessarily hate each other and don't know each other. Up, like, like the flying guy versus the tiny guy. It doesn't seem like the, the the most visually stimulating fight, but it was great fun to watch. And, and also, because we already love Falcon, it was just a, a cheer to see him turn up. So, the, speaking of the Avengers facility there at the end, mm-hmm. um, Kevin Feige, Feige, the guy, Feige, he, he's actually in an interview I, I read earlier today, mm-hmm. and he says, if you were to freeze frame on that reveal in Ant-Man of the Avengers facility, you would see part of what you saw at the end of Age of Ultron. Yeah. So it's actually that same day that Tony like drives away. So yeah, they're driving away at the end. Oh, seriously? Yeah, oh, wow. it's like it, the the fight between Falcon and Ant Man must happen like immediately following the Avengers blank line of Age of Ultron. Um, but you'll also see a section that you didn't see in Ultron, but will be a primary section in Civil War. So apparently there was something else going on there too. Man, that Kevin Feige. <laughs> Yeah. I can't remember at the end of Age of Ultron yeah. when um, Natasha and Steve walk through the doors yeah. and go to greet the new Avengers. Does Falcon fly in then? I don't think he flies yes. in, but he definitely no, he does. He pops the wings. No, no, he, no, he, he lands. Flies. He lands. lands. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So that's him coming in from. Uh, I think that might be um, earlier in the be day, and then later on he ends up tangling with a little midget. Tiny. Sorry. I can't say midget. That's ridiculous. That's not even scientifically correct. I meant miniature man. I'll leave that in. But uh, yeah, don't, don't nice, use the nice word recovery. midget, folks. It's it's hurtful. Uh, but yeah, no, the the it, nice he, he didn't expect to uh, <laughs> to tangle with a little tiny fellow on that yeah. afternoon. Yeah. <sighs> Yeah, it's such a ludicrous fight, and and it's really uh, it's good to see in many ways that Scott is on the wrong end of this until he realizes what the suit is good for. Yeah. Basically, mm. in this fight, he he's clearly physically outmatched, mm. but we know from the break in to get the suit in the first place that he thinks on his feet. He's able to to strategize well. He's a smart guy, mm. and he works out that he's not going to be able to tangle with Falcon. He's going to have to just disable. Um, Falcon's apparatus, Falcon's yeah. you know technology and equipment, and so he does that. Um, but yeah, he's kind of rolling about in the ground in paroxysms of pain for most of it. Um, 
Yeah. It was kind of like seeing Anthony Mackie fight himself. Um, <laughs> but the, Marvel had a tough sell on their hands with the actual action of this. They were like, right, how do we make someone who's incredibly small um, actually like dynamic? Because ultimately, if a, a guy that size is running at you across the uh, garden, it'd take all day. <laughs> so they had to really make these uh, these fights dynamic and uh, um they uh, th- yeah the the actual action sequences are great fun uh, not obviously not marvel best that's uh that's winter soldier still for me but uh, but you know really uh, um inventive use of uh, what they could do yeah within the context of the film yeah and they'd set out to not do Honey, I Shrunk the Kids style massive sets and things to make you feel like you were in a, a massive world, but actually you're just in a giant creaky set and everyone can see that these days. So they had macro photography, which is basically um, tiny cameras shooting extremely close up. And it was it was jaw-dropping because it felt like, oh, this is all CG, but it also felt incredibly real because it was. It's a silly little thing, but I was surprised we never saw the ugly bunny from their perspective. Yeah, <laughs> he could have like like that. Like uh, they already did the Thomas the Tank Engine smack it into. Uh, and by the way, huge laughs. Even though that was in the trailer, great laughs. No one expected yeah. it to become huge either. Um, but yeah, they, they could have actually had this bunny just going and crushing the wasp, uh, the uh, yellow jacket. Yellow jacket. Yellow jacket. Yeah. Um, yeah. But they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think uh, you know it, it was hideous at the, at the, at the tiny size uh, in gargantuan size. I think children would have had nightmares forever. That would have been in the uh, <laughs> troublemaker section in Inside Out. Huh? <laughs> there were um, there were aspects of that, and, and that actually that particular thing you're talking about would have been something you'd expect to see in something like Toy Story. Yeah. You know that kind of aspect yeah. where you're suddenly seeing things from the toys' perspective. Actually, yeah, but that- there were aspects of it that reminded me of Toy Story, especially three. Yeah, um, where where they're kind of in the um, in the nursery and then trying to escape and everything, and you're seeing you know all, all of the films actually, but for some reason the the escape there from from the at the end kind of reminded me of that. But yeah, also naming the ants was a great idea because I mean kids love bugs, but the idea of uh, uh, calling. Um one of them, Anthony, was a really great, great way of, of showing that, you know, these are bugs that want to help you rather than, and, and specifically showing that Scott was the one naming them rather than Hank, who just gives them numbers, personalizes both of their approaches. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So another, so I love throwing in little Easter egg things because I, I love those little moments. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anthony was ant number 247. Yeah. Uh, hang on. I think he's he was, working 24 seven. <laughs> Well, no. Well, I'm trying to think. He was either two four seven or four two seven. Hang on, how long do and ants live? Not very long. Yeah. Um, but uh, that is a reference to uh, the original comics because uh, Hank Pym debuted in Tales to Astonish issue twenty seven, and Scott Lang was in Tales to Ast- or the Astonishing Ant Man uh, forty seven. Nice. So okay. Anthony's number designation is a reference to that. Very good. And Cross, in the very beginning, says, Tales to Astonish, oh, yes, the Ant-Man. Mm-hmm. And I was the only so. person in the entire cinema who went, ah! <laughs> <laughs> There's a nutter down there, or maybe just a Marvel fan. Again, did you guys get people leaving just before the end? Yeah. Well, I, I wanted to shout at them, majority, have you yeah. ever watched a Marvel movie? <laughs> By now! I actually... 
I actually stood up and yelled. I was like, there's a second stinger. Get back in your seat. It's Civil War related. Um, but <laughs> I, I also had, to... had a, a We Hate Movie style terrible experience with some of the people because I originally sat down, empty theater, and these this trio of octogenarians sat in front of me. Were they like, Empty theater. <laughs> they sit in front of me. And they, they would just be like, oh, he's little now. Oh, oh, look at that's an ant. And I'm just like, oh, oh my God. I'm, I, I, oh my goodness. I got up and had to move to the other side of the, yeah. uh, the, the theater, but it was just one of those things. I'm like, I could write this into, we hate movies. Yeah, you should. Cause I mean that, that needs to be read out on a mailbag. <sighs> you should actually have, have, have gotten your own back by just going, what are we watching? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, just quickly regarding the ants, um, I don't know if the plan is to come to this later, but that would have been such an easy thing to lift out of this film mm-hmm. if you want to just present Ant-Man in a audience-friendly way. Yeah. Let's not have him talk to ants. He just goes small. You can... He's you know higher density at that point, therefore hits hard. Yeah. That's an that's a relatively easy power to understand. But it it's not an easy one to show, and they do a great job of yeah. that. But the ants could have been lifted out, yeah. and it was really great that they didn't because they did that aspect justice. I thought. Yeah, I think if this was really, made by DC Warner Brothers, they'd probably have taken out the ants. Oh, yeah. guaranteed, guaranteed. <laughs> ants are but not sexy really... and dark. but it really informed on both of their characters too because Hank was like these are your greatest weapons and he treats them like tools while Scott is naming them he's saying good job guys go get to cover it's like like, a a sports film yeah where he's coaching them (laughs) honestly they could have had that scene where he's like trying to tame the ants exactly like Blue and Bravo and and Charlie and Echo And then Star-Lord comes in. That's my gig! Okay. But uh, actually, I, I remember saying that, honestly, Chris Pratt could have played Scott and uh, uh, Paul Rudd could have played uh, um, Star-Lord. There's, they, they have slightly different personalities. Um, and yeah, I think there's, an, there's enough of a crossover. There, yeah, it, it felt like there was a flavor of Star-Lord to them. So, so it, to that end, it felt like they were playing it a little bit safe. But at the same time, I've seen Paul Rudd play a guy very much like this time and time again. So at the same time, it still felt very natural. So it's kind of part of the casting as well. Uh, but I mean, if you see Scott Lang in the in the uh, comics, he's he's not exa- he's not much fun. So uh, at least he wasn't originally. Um, and similarly, in Earth's Mightiest Heroes, he's like, I gotta save my daughter, which may be why they k- took the heart condition out of it because it would just have been like everyone would have kept thinking, oh, but that poor little girl, you know. Yeah, that's that's one thing that I, I can't give Marvel enough credit for. They they are just sticking by. I don't know if this is can can fun be universally de- defined because that seems to be what they're doing. Everything that they do yeah. seems to fit at least my perspective of universally defined fun. I like things going boom and buildings falling in darkness too, mm-hmm. but I don't exactly call it fun. Darkness There's... and no parents. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I do, no, I completely agree. They uh, they it's it's what allows them to keep standing out, and uh, it also, if you remember the uh, the Amazing Spider-Man films, a lot less fun than these ones were. So there was a lot more brooding no. and upset, and, and the X-Men as well. But no, and, and I mean that's just it. There, everything like everything is so dark in every other superhero movie, pretty much that we've ever seen ever, mm. except for the original Superman's. Yeah, to the point where in Fantastic Four, the uh, the new trailers that. Are, 
coming the, the the first trailer was like this is just like interstellar the second trailer was like no oh, but it's fun too and they were like they did that thing where they show someone saying something funny and then it cuts to the, the, the sue storm laughing at something someone else said at a different part of the movie and it's like da, 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 <laughs> boom fantastic four and uh it, i hope hope that they're going to be following the marvel formula <sighs> we'll see <laughs> in fantastic four yeah i wouldn't hold your breath yeah uh, oh well, it's it's the director of Chronicle, right? Which I really liked. Oh, I love Chronicle, it, but it's but not necessarily it fun, is yeah. it? Yeah, no. In, in the way you're talking about, yeah, Mike. No. exactly. Yeah. Um, one other thing I was going to say about the action, the ants, the fighting. Oh, the fun. The bits with the jujitsu or the whatever that we've seen Black Widow like you know jump up, grab <laughs> someone's head with it with her legs, and then swing them down to the floor. It never stops being impressive though. So when <laughs> people do it, it's like wow, that's awesome. And uh, so yeah, Scott Lang actually manages to to be the, the um, you know kind of a badass by the end, which uh, uh, it's it's difficult to kind of like keep those two together. Like he's still a little bit. Like, there's a little bit of haplessness about him, but he's also skilled. When he's doing the uh, the the break in, he's you know clearly he's I suppose he's the Tony Stark of breaking into stuff. You know, he had that same kind of like you know okay, I'm going to think on my feet here to break through into the safe. Uh, so they were they were showing that was his sort of do 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 going to the workshop. Uh, so, uh, th- yeah, yeah. Th- this, especially when he's actually inside the house and kind of thinking on his feet, that reminded me of some of the stuff in Iron Man 3 where you see him, you see Tony Stark basically making weapons and tools yeah, out of scratch. nothing at all. Together the whole group uh, have enough skills that actually make for an extremely formidable force. But again, coming back to it, it is the group together which uh, which makes this Ant-Man more like a Guardians. Um, yes. Team Ant-Man, yeah. if you will. So if they do start, you know, going with the wasp splitting off, I kind of feel like they need to have this team backstage as well, uh, helping out. And if they do just go completely legit as uh, Avengers and they they kind of lose that aspect to them, it's gonna feel a little like something drops away. They're gonna have to fill that the, with something else. So the difference is there that um, if you put just at the moment Ant Man um, Wasp, we haven't seen where how they're going to treat that character. But if you take Ant Man, put him in the Avengers, you substitute out the other team members yeah. for people in the Avengers. So he still has a support group. It's just probably they won't have the full support yeah. group unless he's on his own. So it, I think it could still work. And um, the one thing I was going to say about Scott in that respect, in terms of the break-in, he noticed that the company he worked for. So he's a mechanical engineer, worked for a company. He realized they were overcharging customers and basically committing fraud. Nice. And the implication is he somehow hacked their accounts, whatever, managed to get the money back to the people that he stole it. Nice. There's no implication there that he had any kind of cat burgling skills. Yeah. It feels like there are two aspects to this character that I'm not entirely sure. I'm fine with it because it was fun to watch, yeah. but I'm not entirely sure they explain They're how two you totally different spin flip over the wall, climb up the drain pipe, um, you know, think on his feet in terms of being able to combine chemicals and, yeah. uh, and blow open a safe door, etc. It's like being a nuclear physicist and a world-class chemist. At the same and, time, and then yeah. whenever he's in the presence of Hank and Hope, he becomes the silly sort of slightly out of the loop one who needs science explaining to him. <laughs> <laughs> it, 
they they do morph his character a little bit into whatever it needs to be. Um, and I think that it it's yep. fine because it's always fun and it's Paul Rudd, so you're absolutely fine yep. with it. But there is an aspect there of me wondering, and again, maybe projecting whether there's two different versions of this character in mm-hmm. different scripts that they kind of melded together yeah. into one. But it won't, you know, maybe not. Maybe it's mutually exclusive. Because if maybe he yeah. had to steal a hard drive and he used another tech guy mm. to do the yeah. money. Yeah. It was kind of refreshing, by the way, that their HQ, rather than being Avengers HQ, this super posh skyscraper or a, a government, like a, a military <laughs> facility, and not being Tony Stark's Malibu house, was just an old yeah. man's house. Like your granddad's house, basically. It's still pretty big yeah. for an old man's Pretty house, spacious but. stuff. But uh, it's the, the way it was decorated, it's like no like modern you know, adult would, would live in a house like that unless they were very kooky or creepy and possibly I, the Adams family. And it's fairly low tech. I don't know if you noticed, but Hank's um, setup was all CRT monitors. Yeah. Like he'd yes, set this I up very quickly after leaving S.H.I.E.L.D., mm and hadn't really got the finances or the ability to, yeah. to do something it's like Tony right. you know, Tony Stark remodels his house every time he wants to change an arm on the Iron Man suit. So, um, and there's no sense of that here. So, yeah, it felt almost like the uh, farmhouse, mm. you, uh, the Barton's farmhouse from Age of Ultron, where that was a, a separate, you know, that was kind of them having to slum it almost, yeah. you know. And stay out of the way, but whereas this was no, this is where Hank works, and that's where they're running their entire kind of shoestring team from. Speaking of not having finances, the wasp suit could fly, right? Yes. Why can't the yes. Ant Man suit fly? Why doesn't it have those wings? <laughs> like, you know, you'd think that he'd go right. It always takes me 15 minutes to run through a room. <laughs> Why don't I just get these wings and attach them to the Ant-Man suit, you know? He, he does have the ants, but it's like, yeah, couldn't he be more autonomous with the wings and therefore yeah. wouldn't it be a sensible... Now, Ant-Man didn't have it in the comics, but I think Yellow Jacket did have wings. So, um, yeah, it... In, in this one, Yellow Jacket could fly as well. Yeah, so, yeah, so. But, but yeah, it, w- it would have made more sense. But it, it also feels like he hasn't upgraded that suit. Like, yeah. maybe he never upgraded it at the time. He'd only just put the wings onto Wasp suit, maybe, and never wanted to look at the suit again. But again, after. it's kind of cool to have a lower tech thing as well. Yeah, yeah. Not, not everything has to be the newest brand, you know, stark tech armor. And, and the suit looks like something that's believably older yeah, as well. Yeah. Uh, in many ways. Biker leathers made in the eighties when biker leathers were cool, but not just black <laughs> biker leathers. X Men. <laughs> that may be a, a factor of Hank's um, personal tastes as well. Maybe he just wasn't that keen on flying. Yeah, maybe actually, that's uh, that could be explained in, in in a comic prequel or something. I always get sick on fly. I can't do a Michael Douglas voice, <laughs> but you get the point. He wasn't doing well in the back of the rocket either, let's be honest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it could also be something along the lines of, like, I mean, you said he had the CRT monitors and he hasn't upgraded the suit in so long. Um, yeah. It's like, okay, well, we have enough resources. We can put it on one of these suits. Clearly, I'm going to put it on your suit because I want to make sure you can get out of danger much faster than I can. Oh, good yeah. point. Because, yeah, you know, you have to get through this more than me. Which I think kind of brings us to going subatomic. Yeah. Hmm? 
Yes. The, yeah. Like the, it's one of those ones that, that in the uh, film where they say, you can never do this. This will never happen. You're doomed if this happens. <laughs> like, we can never go down And there. you know it's coming up That's in the third like, By the end, the main character will have done exactly this. And it's fine. It's, it's actually fine to lay down that barrier and say this can never be broken and for the character to then do that. Um, because he, he did it for an extremely good reason. And um, when he did, it, it was... It was I was not expecting 2001 levels of really. Um, well, is there another way of, of saying tripping balls? <laughs> Surrealism? Yeah. Um, Surrealism or metaphysics, I yeah. suppose it, it gets into, doesn't it? Yeah. The, now, apparently, if you get the Blu ray and start pausing, or next time, if you go to the cinema to see it again, there is a human figure in there. Uh, Kevin Feige has said yeah. that uh, uh, Scott doesn't see something or someone. Now, you don't actually phrase it something or someone unless it's actually someone. Um, <laughs> so people are speculating that that's Janet Van Dyne. Or it could be some kind of celestial being. Maybe something connected to Doctor Strange. Either way, a lot of Easter egg stuff there. Go check out the conspiracy theory sites for it. Uh, but it didn't actually... I think everyone was looking for sort of like like some kind of like immediate meeting with Janet Van Dyne where she'd just sort of turn up and chat with him. But um, again, they kept that mysterious. They kept that absence aching, yes. you know? Yeah. But yeah, no, the, so, the actual moment itself is uh, it really very, very effective for me. So my, my question is that this is all revealed when Scott is kind of trying to upgrade the suit a little bit yeah. and Hank comes in and says, do not change that. The settings, um, yeah. It's the... Inhibitor. No, it's not. That's not what it's a regulator. Regulator. regulator yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, when Janet turns off her regulator, she literally turns a dial. If that regulator shouldn't be tampered with, should it be that easy to turn it off? <laughs> As opposed to having to actually go inside it and remove something from there, it's literally just she turns the dial, which implies that that's an option that should be left available to whoever is wearing the suit, which it really shouldn't. Well, I think, and I, I could be wrong on this, but I think the regulator, the reason that it's a dial is the original uh, suit and the pin particles can actually make yeah. you larger too. Mm, and that's how yes. you set how big or small. So you need exactly. some kind yeah. of dial. But yeah, I see what you mean. It should have like, you know, when she turns the dial, isn't there like a, a spark or something kind of showing that she like breaks Maybe the regulator? That's yeah. what I thought. Yeah, because the, the implication of it, in fact, I think um, Hank even says it at one point, and obviously it's what happens to Scott when he goes down that small. The rabbit. Is that there's there's no control over it. You will just keep shrinking and shrinking and Forever. shrinking. So yeah, I suspect yeah. that the, the original dial on Janet's suit had a stopping point, but that wasn't, she wasn't small enough to get through where she needed to get through. Yeah. So yeah. she just she literally went, right no, this is more important, and broke it. I do love the idea that uh, this is it's fourth-dimensional space, so it actually time has no relative meaning there. So uh, Janet, if she is in there, may not have aged even a second since she... Uh, and, and that also explains why, even though... Because when Scott starts shrinking, obviously you see some of the stuff that is around him mm. still around him, yeah. and you get a sense of the fact he's still in the same place. But when he gets down to that sort of... Um, that kaleidoscope yeah, yeah. It, he passes a point where time and space behave differently and therefore even though janet was the other side of the world essentially p potentially when when she uh shrank that 
he may still be able to perceive her there, at least feasibly. Mm. There is actually a good reason why, um, the with the growth side of things, uh, not to be able to uh, go too large. They mentioned this in, I think it was the Ultimates. I don't think it's uh, necessarily uh, related in the comics. But there is a certain size that Hank can grow to when he becomes Giant Man that his skeletal structure can support. Once it goes above a certain size, weight, and body mass his bones would crush under the weight of it, which is kind of fascinating and a really great limitation for a hero to have. He can't go kaiju big. (laughs) (laughs) And how does that work in terms of um, keeping the molecules together then? Because given that the point of the the shrinking technology is that it moves your atoms closer together, but your mass remains effectively the same, Mm -hmm. surely if he got bigger, he wouldn't get any heavier, but he would start to become gaseous. (laughs) Maybe. He could phase through things or something, yeah, Yeah. but that's not generally the way it's portrayed in the comics. You don't want to be around Giant Man when he's gaseous. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, as the word came out, I thought phrasing. <laughs> but yeah, they would need to. Hank would need to invent something else to make going larger work in the same way where um, certainly in Earth's Mightiest Heroes they have him fighting Hulk. Yeah, and no, and there is <laughs> yeah. a, there There's have no been substance. Marvel characters who have that exact power, haven't they? One of the um, the Power Pack could move his molecules apart until he became yeah. a cloud. The explanation that I understand in the comics, the hand wave is just that the same way that the density naturally increases when he reduces, mm-hmm. he has control of that separately. So he, yeah. there, uh, something I read where he kind of kicked the crap out of Doctor Doom, ripped his suit apart at normal size, and Doom was, you know, hey, what are you doing? How can you do that? You're just a man. Well, no, I can control my density at any size. So no. that would be the hand wave. Do bear in mind, this, by the way, is certain writers retroactively trying to apply physics to Stan Lee's crazy science <laughs> written for kids. Wouldn't it 60s. be cool if this guy could get big? Yeah. Uh, so really, it's, it's kind of like, you know, Stan did not know these characters were still going to be going 50, 60 years time. So uh, he, he just basically wrote what would be fun. And So the obvious two problems in this film are... The Tank and Thomas the Tank. Nice. Because the Tank, Hank should not be able to pick up on that keychain. Because it should be the density and weight of a tank. And Thomas the Tank (laughs) engine should not be bursting through that wall if he is the weight of a toy. Of a small toy, yeah. Uh, Which is what happens when you try to apply physics and science to something that's mad. (laughs) But but by that same same, uh, idea, though, then... Those were two of the skags, by the way. (laughs) Yeah. Scott wouldn't have been able to use the ping pong racket on uh, Yellow Jacket. Yeah. He'd have gone straight through it. Yeah. So I, I would suspect, I mean, the Thomas the Tank Engine, I, I, I got nothing for that. But <laughs> the uh, the tank is clearly from Hank's superheroine days. And there could be, like, something he built in it to, to that could, like, um, control it like the suit. Because there's something, they mentioned something about the suit that it doesn't do much with your weight, or something. I don't. I don't remember exactly. But there's a lot of points where they they play really loose and fast with how heavy these objects should actually be. Well, surely he couldn't stand on Iron Man's shoulder if he weighs as much as Scott Lang. Well, I'd be impressed he didn't fall through the Avengers facility. Yeah. At being that tiny and weighing as much as a person. Yeah. No. It's mm. it's uh it's kind of loopy physics in this one. And uh, if if you went through it uh, with a fine tooth comb, which is what you need to get ants. Because that's how you get ants out of your uh, <laughs> hair. Um, then, then you would 
just turn up like many, many instances where it actually doesn't work. And it's, it's kind of like the time traveling back to the future in this case, um, that they really needed to just sort of like get a, uh, get a, get some rules, set those rules and really stick to them because people like rules. <laughs> we'll just go with, we'll just go with a wizard did it and a wizard's coming. Yep. So yeah, yeah nice. Yeah. I mean, we don't, uh, the stuff about getting bigger, uh, that we were talking about where the molecules move further apart. We don't, we have that from the comics. Technically we, it's not from the movies. I mean, maybe it makes the actual molecules bigger, although that has a whole lot of problems too. I mean, Doesn't I it just, no. uh, um, it, hang on. This is honey. I shrunk the kids science. All atoms are made up of various amounts of particles and empty space. What this machine simply does is remove that em- part of that empty space. That's yeah, shrinking. Which, which, to be fair, in like actual science, would cause those atoms to collide with each other and become other atoms, and you would actually be something more like creating tiny suns. Oh fuck! You'd imagine- split the atoms. And <laughs> in, in shrinking the kids, you'd actually blow up all of America. Well, it would, it'd, it'd be the opposite. Actually, be fusion because the atoms right. would get so close together, the protons and electrons would fuse, and then they would make bigger. It would, so it your would kids literally could be power what the sun Stark does. towers for a month. Uh, longer than that, for as long as the sun would go. Oh, awesome. we got to do that. we got to shrink some kids. <laughs> Get Rick Moranis on it right now. He's retired. That would be such a dark, gritty reboot. It'd be like, imagine a world with clean, free energy. All you need to give us is your kids. <laughs> I talk about harnessing the energy of my kids all the time. I didn't really think about it that way. Nice. It's, it's okay, folks. Uh, get back to us with your scientific notes. Let's make this happen, shall we? Do a <laughs> TED talk on it. Um, anything else about how this basically fits in with Marvel? Because we're nearly nearing the two-hour mark now, and I think we've we've pretty much done Ant Man justice. I have another really really weird Easter egg mm-hmm. that I am amazed that it even exists. The goons that are uh, Hydra agents oh, yes. or with the Hydra agent, they have ten rings tattoos on the back oh, of their necks. Oh, nice! Oh, yeah, seeding yeah. that Mandarin again. Yeah, yeah. Which See, I okay, feel so- at this point is just Marvel being like, yeah, yep, yeah, that, that conspiracy theory, that fan theory that the real Mandarin's out there or or whatever. Yeah, we're just going to keep fueling that and laughing at the people <laughs> as they keep writing these thing pieces. I wonder, I mean, how, how many interactions does the Mandarin have outside of Iron Man? Any any major ones at all? Because if, if Robert Downey Jr. does retire from this, which he will, I know, like he's being, you know, he's making tons of money being hugely gracious coming back again and again, but he's not going to do this forever. Uh, didn't he only come back for Civil War because they offered him a major there because originally Civil War wasn't going to have Iron Man. Mm. And then they were like, actually, we'd be really like it if you were in this. He's like, OK, well, then I have to be a main player in it. And they like went back and rewrote it. I remember because his contract was up and they extended it for one more film specifically because he demanded mm. that he be a main character in it if he was going to be in it at all. Well, his contract, yeah. uh, I believe his contract is up actually in um it was actually it was an additional film before his contract finishes, which will be with Infinity War. Uh, but uh, I, I would predict he'll be back in a um, like a cameo role uh, for future films. Basically, if he can turn up for a day's work, basically be the new Nick Fury, you know, do what Samuel L. Jackson did, you know, turn up for a or, day. or at least make it so that it doesn't always have to be Nick Fury. Yeah, because again, Nick yeah. Fury but- ain't gonna last forever. Yeah. The the point with that though is, could they ever could could we ever get a more true without the racism mandarin without iron man 
Oof. I mean, yeah, we beat it. Basically, really, just a, a really um, uh, self-possessed Chinese businessman. He doesn't have to have the freaking Fu Manchu thing going on. Yeah. Uh, but just played and, by somebody also, extremely charismatic. Yeah, doable. Yeah. And also, just like Cap's not going to finish with Steve Rogers, Iron Man doesn't finish with Tony Stark necessarily. Mm. Um, in that they've got War Machine ready to step into those shoes. So. Yeah. Oh true. yeah, War That's Machine true. versus Mandarin would be interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like in the comics, Mandarin has fought other people, but I can't say offhand. Um, okay, so possible future. What well, for a start? I, I'm going to say right now. You know, the next time we do a Marvel film, we'll be talking about Civil War. Wow. Bloody hell! Am I excited about this film? This is more. Ex- <laughs> this is more exciting to me than Age of Ultron was, um, and uh, more exciting, feasibly, than Infinity War. We'll see. But um, yeah, you look at the cast list that's announced for that. Yeah. It's incredibly oh. exciting and interesting. It's not. Yeah. But it's not just the cast or even the premise. It's just that the Russo brothers did so goddamn well the last <laughs> time, yeah. and you know, it's the same same writers as Winter Soldier. So uh, just. I, I'm. I am so in. So, especially after that post-credit sequence. Yeah, I was just gonna say, talk about the post-credit sequence just a little bit. That actually is footage cut from their production of Civil War. Yeah, that that yeah, was same done as they did by with, uh, Age of Ultron um, at the end of uh, Winter Soldier. And at the end of uh, Thor: To the Dark World, yeah. that was actually from, done by James Gunn yeah. for Guardians of the Galaxy, which is a great little habit to be getting into. Just like a little cross-pollination. Although I seem to remember this, uh, it might have been Kevin Feige saying at um, San Diego Comic-Con that this is the first time that he's actually asked for material to be cut or to be um, taken from the film and put in. So in those other instances, it's something that was filmed by the, the director of yeah, the next film, yeah. but separately to be, whereas this Rather was than this is actually a chunk we, of we the wanted, film. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, wait, where do we get the pseudo trailer for Avengers wasn't that the end of uh, Captain America 1 so, yeah that was the end of uh, first Avengers so it, that, it did actually have bits of uh, that footage you know? yeah, oh, hard feelings actually, point break yeah. you got a mean swing <laughs> <laughs> oh god I love the Avengers so very much <laughs> I mean this is really a huge huge deal here because this is the last really focused Steve Rogers um, story we're going to get really uh, for from Marvel for a long, long time, I think, yeah. as far as I can tell, and he's become my favourite uh, Marvel character, thanks to um, uh, Chris Evans' performance and the way he's been, the way his character has played out over the series. Yeah. And but uh, you know, my second favourite Marvel character is, uh, you know, used to be my first favourite, Tony Stark. Tony Stark. So I mean. Mm. There's nothing I want to see more than a clash of ideologies between these two guys. That one that hopefully doesn't turn genuinely nasty. I think it's interesting that this post post credits um, teaser mm. it doesn't hint at all that much about an ideological split, so much as potentially at least a personal split. Yeah. In that the the line about if this had been a week ago. It's not worded like that, but if this had been a week ago, we'd call Tony, but we can't now. Um, hints that there may have been something happen. It could just be that, obviously, he found out Winter Soldier exists and etc. cetera. Yeah. Um, but it hints at a split that could be as much personal as anything because actually thinking... I was thinking about it today. In terms of the split between government registration, 
they'd have a bit of work to do to convince you that either one of those two guys was really for it and either one of them was really against it at this point. Yeah. I don't think they've done any groundwork in that respect. So the divide at least has the potential to be a much more personal one with obviously Winter Soldier being at the centre of that depending upon how they spin that particular character's involvement. Especially if the idea is like, you know, to start coming down too hard with uh, oppressive, almost right-wing government regimes. Like, what did we learn from Ultron at this stage? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Is Pepper in the credits yet? Hold on. I can't remember if she was casting this or not, because that would be like the the way the civil war played out in the comics to my understanding. And I believe they're heading down a similar road, whether or not they're going to do it on the big screen or hint at it on shield or whatnot is um, Mm. somebody with powers goes like creates a huge problem. And, you know, Tony's already seen that he's seen that, you know, 17 times now, but if pepper was involved in some way, Okay, so just like for folks who don't know already, I know Sharon doesn't know everyone yet. Uh, so let, let's just do a rundown of these characters in this list, shall we? Uh, Paul Rudd, like, the top of the list, like the star of Captain America Civil War, Paul Rudd as Ant Man. <laughs> uh, so yeah, Black Widow's in it, Ant Man's in it. Tom Holland as Peter Parker, the Spider Man, is in it. Captain America, Iron Man, Scarlet Witch, Winter Soldier, Hawkeye. Sharon Carter is in it. Vision is in it. Martin Freeman as somebody is in it. Mm. Bilbo, obviously. Obviously, Bilbo. <laughs> uh, Danielle Bruhl as Baron Zemo is in it. Thunderbolt Ross is in it, played by William Hurt again, at long last. T'Challa, the Black Panther, played by Chadwick Boseman, is in it. <laughs> Crossbones is back. Falcon is in it. War Machine Nurse is in it. <laughs> I don't know if Nurse is the codename for a new superhero, but probably she might just be a nurse. Because there's also Raft Guard, whoever that is. Uh, might that not be Sharon Carter, and they've just double-dipped on that? No, that's uh, Shirley Al- Alvello, because... Uh, uh, oh, right, different, different, different actress. Woman. This is, I'm just looking at the IMDb here. Um, just looking down here. Mercenary is in it. And that pretty much seems to be it for actual Marvel characters. And, um, yeah, no pepper so far, but geez, I think uh, in all seriousness, I think this is going to be mostly from Steve's perspective and, uh, Stark is going to be the, um, uh, from viewed externally. Would you say that he'd be the antagonist? You bugger. <laughs> I applaud your pun, sir. <laughs> okay. So, um, yeah, I, I, at the end when uh, uh, Steve says, I know a guy. No, actually, it's Falcon says, I know a guy. Um, yep. Some people have... Uh, oh, actually, I think Falcon actually mentions back when they're uh, talking about um, the uh, uh, the Avengers HQ before he takes on Ant-Man himself. He mentions, we've got a guy who climbs up walls. No, that's the sting at the end, I think. Oh, okay, right. She, she says, yeah. says we got a guy, a guy who jumps, a guy who... Uh, swings a guy who climbs up walls. Right, okay. Um, there have been various uh, uh, accounts. One saying, oh, that was just in there before the actual uh, Sony uh, merger was um, properly you know, put through. And another person saying, no, 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 that was definitely added afterwards. So we'll see, shall we? But uh, yeah, either way, that's a little nod to Spider-Man being in there. That's the closest they've come to actually straight up saying Spider-Man. Um, yeah. And uh, But also, I know a guy. I'm assuming Falcon's going to get... Uh, um, 
Ant-Man involved in a way that... That's the implication, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. So... I'm, I'm not sure what the problem they need Ant-Man to deal with yeah. is. Because looking at that particular scenario, it's like, well... Bucky's down. Do they want him to go inside Bucky's arm? But why? That seems bizarre. That's what I thought, but it's... Yeah, that's really I thought the implication. <laughs> well, just undo the vice. It's fine. Do they want yeah. to go into Bucky's... <laughs> Body is this inner space? No, by the way, it, this film did remind me a bit of inner space in a good way because I love inner space. <laughs> yeah, just put put Bucky in the suit, and, yep. and it's easier to hide a tiny Bucky. Maybe get him oh, into get him the into other one, Bucky's yeah. brain because uh, uh, there's a thing in there, and they can't go in there without it exploding. There's precedent for that in the comics, but I, I just thought that Tony had something they needed stolen. And so that's one thing, yeah, because yeah, that's <laughs> that's why Spider-Man might be a viable, yeah choice for that um whereas if it's to go inside somewhere like bucky's arm or brain or it just gets a ridiculous and b how does spider-man help in that situation yeah Um, but the other one could be uh, to hide bucky so that tony can't find him in which case miniaturizing him is a viable option potentially although if falcon saw him that quickly (laughs) just put him in your pocket yeah um You'll pull your trousers down, though, because he has the weight of a normal human being. Good point. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Maybe you need a belt and Steve to be carrying him around. Um, so, I mean, it seems like they could do a giant man at some point later on in the future. But, uh, but what they've really done here is laid down the pin particle technology so they can, you know, then from this film could stem a whole load of different Marvel characters and Marvel powers. Yeah. So that's that's great. They've seeded that there already. I'm surprised they didn't make more of a big deal. Actually, no, they did. With the making the, the uh, Thomas the Tank Engine massive, although it was a gag, that right there, it's it's sort of yeah. setting you up for maybe things will get bigger. And the ant. Well, yeah, the, the, and of course, yeah, the giant dog-sized ant. Yeah. The, um, the discs that Hank newly develops mm. that mean that Scott can get back out of the, um, the quantum realm... Uh, are a blue and a red one, just one to make things him. small, the other to make things big. So he's able to use that. You just have to buy him putting it inside the regulator, I guess, but he's able to use it on himself when his suit is no longer able to make him big to, to increase his size. I'm honestly surprised that the little buttons on the Ant-Man suit uh, on the left and right hand didn't say, eat me and drink me. <laughs> <laughs> nice. oh, anything else? Uh, the kiss between Hope and Scott seemed like a reach oh. <laughs> I know why they put it in there because it's a nice comic moment where Scott Lang gets to be self-deprecating on the way down the stairs mm. being told he's full of you know what by Hank but it felt like they could have done with waiting for that moment yeah. because there, in fact it there was, was there wasn't refreshing a, there for that not to be there exactly it felt like it, it was almost and it, maybe it was where they wanted to go, but it felt like it was a, well, these are the male and female lead of this film. We have to have them together, obviously. It's like, well, they put enough grounding in there that you almost buy it, but it would have been nice to see that be a slower burn yeah. and a longer kind of um, target for, for that. Oh, those it, was an, it was an unfortunate choice in that, in that sense. I read it as that it was just the gag, just an excuse for yeah, yeah. To, to insult him. And, I mean, But unfortunately... Because of all the implications that you just said, they, they shouldn't—it shouldn't have been in. Yeah. Well, yeah. a lot of the stuff, though. I mean, you do see hope whenever she's watching him, like really warm up to him, and I could almost see yeah. it yeah. as like a like we just got through this 
Um, I mean, even though it was, you know, after the fact, but just kind of a spur of the moment, not like, we're going to go steady, just more like, you know, come here, you big lug. Like, whenever he, um, doesn't he do the uh, the Black Widow to Falcon with, like, the the legs around the head and then spin him down? And then it cuts to Hope and and Hank, and Hank's just looking at a monitor, and Hope just kind of, like, nods approvingly. Does the the Black Widow, I like that. It's totally a Black Widow now, from now on. (laughs) When when Black Widow, Black Widow's happy, that's an I want one moment. And uh, so, yeah, I suppose uh, (laughs) if if there were ladies in the audience going, I want one, or or men, if they were that way inclined, then that's uh, that's totally totally valid. There is that scene with Hope and Hank where Hank actually tells uh, Hope about uh, how her mother went out, if not died. And it's really well played, really well handled. Uh, I hate saying well in this podcast, but uh, it is. Um, it was touchingly restrained. And then Scott kind of steps on it. But it's almost <laughs> like, yeah, this is a trope that happens in a movie. So let's kind of subvert that by having Scott like make it awkward immediately afterwards so that the tone doesn't quite work. And um, I, I get that, but I think that the next time I see it, it's going to annoy me. Yeah, because it's like Scott. Yeah, fuck yeah. off, just for a bit. It, it's like, how does this guy not realize? There's, there's no way he didn't realize before he said it that he was stepping on a moment. Yeah. So why did he say yeah. it? Yeah, it just and makes him an asshole. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, he's got to be kind of an asshole. <laughs> he's been in prison. <laughs> yeah, but he's but he can't be one hundred percent a dick. Yeah, <laughs> nah. nobody is. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I think that Darren Cross would be. He'd be up there. <laughs> <laughs> it depends whether it's the pin particle or the cross particle affecting his brain, I suppose. Uh, oh, it's true. The Red Skull is 100% a dick. He doesn't even like his dogs. <laughs> ah, that's a good point. <laughs> I kill my own men. Right, um, any more on the Ant-Mans? No, I'm out of notes. Then I think we're done. Thank you, folks, very, very much for coming on the show. Do you guys want to pimp your podcast before we go? Um, start with James Carter. Uh, yeah, sure. I just want to say uh, thank you very much for having me on. Um, Ant-Man was a massive surprise for me, just how much they nailed it um, going in with a few concerns. Um, and anyone who wants to listen to to me elsewhere can find me at com, where you will find weekly podcasts covering different video games that we try and get in fairly sort of deep dives on covering where they came from, how we feel about them and uh, what their legacies are, much like this podcast does for films. <laughs> it's probably the best way I can, I can pitch it. Uh, let's go for Mike after this one, actually. Not a podcast, but uh, are you still doing weekly, Walter? Or um, could you want to send people to the archive, or, or what would you like? Yeah, I mean, that's what we're going to have to do for now. Walter's coming back. I, I can't give you when. You, you know why, Alex. But uh, uh, there's about two years' worth of, of comics up there to look at. It's WalterTheWicked.com, and uh, I'd love you to take a look. I wish I could tell you when it's coming back, but I, I got some things i got to take care of over here, so... Check it out. It is about an evil wizard and his various henchmen and the antics they get up to. Lauren, go for it. Uh, yeah, I uh, I do a little podcast every other week with my friends Ian Hopwood and Laura Kate, who I think everybody who listens to podcasts has listened to Laura Kate at some point. Um, 
And we basically threw it together because we all have enormous backlogs of Steam games, mm -hmm. and this is a way to actually get through some of them. Uh, we play some, we play terrible games on Steam, so you don't have to, and um, some pretty good games too. Uh, actually, the new episode will be coming out this Wednesday, which will be after, which will be before this podcast goes up. Correct. But still, there's a new one. Episode 13 will be coming out the same week as this one. Which uh, which so. uh, games have you talked about recently? Just uh, the games for the most recent one that I talked about were a game called Black Ice, mm -hmm. which was a really cool retro uh, retro futuristic aesthetic hacker game. Mm -hmm. uh, and where you also uh, play God. a super thief. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you know, you got to do it right. You got to hack the mainframe with the the Gibsons with the right hat. <laughs> um, and then uh, the other game was Prison Architect, which I wasn't as positive about because I'm terrible at simulation games. But other than that, uh, the other four games that they talk about are also quite good. It was a strangely positive episode. So yeah, check it out. Oh, it's, I guess I should say where to find it. You can find it on uh, iTunes at Year of Steam. Uh, you can also, we have a Twitter at Year of Steam. And we're also on Podbean, interestingly enough, where you'll be moving Digital Drift to. Of course, yeah. So, yeah. so uh, that's Year of Steam, Walter the Wicked, and Kane and Rince. Thank you guys very, very much for coming on. Always a pleasure. And let's finish on... Actually, let's finish by my, on my favorite moment in the movie, Plain Song by The Cure. That moment when they're fighting in the briefcase. <laughs> and oh, I will so disintegrate you playing Disintegration. Uh, and uh, your homework, folks, is to go and listen to the album Disintegration by The Cure. It's available on YouTube or if you've got uh, Apple's new way of listening to all kinds of music. It's probably on Spotify as well. Disintegration, one of the greatest albums from the 80s ever. And uh, yeah, we're going to end on that. And also, by the way, some music from Jackie Brown slipped into this film uh, from uh, that do-do-do-do-do uh, when they're talking about heist stuff. That was great. Roger Ayers. Those sequences were... Yeah? Really excellent. All of those bits uh, um, narrated by Michael Pena. Incredibly entertaining. The piece is the one you just heard. It's called Escape by Roger Ayers. It was originally featured in the movie Coffee and then in Jackie Brown later on because... Tarantino's a big fan of black exploitation. If you haven't seen Jackie Brown, see Jackie Brown. And and nobody mentioned the uh, the Disney song cameo from because uh, oh, yeah, because he's whistling. It's a small world. Oh, of course, yeah, that was nice. Beer. Oh, I did really like the bit where uh, Luis is just about to leave the building. And he's like, oh, that guy, and he runs back and gets that guard yeah, that he that stashed. That's really in the room. cool. That's yeah. a really oh, nice yeah. way of saying yeah. you know that we can think about our um, you know the, the people that we knock out collateral damage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, it's a that nice responsible behavior. Sticking it oh, to DC please. further. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> Although at this point, DC are sticking it to themselves. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Taking a sledgehammer to their own I'd knees love, every I'd, trailer. I'd love to hear them say that they planned for this story beat of it actually From all the very being. Beginning. Yeah. Instead of. Oh, everyone thought that was a bit of a crappy ending. Let's try and turn it around. Oh, we managed it. Yeah, crap. right. Yeah. That's that's why Superman goes from ah! <laughs> next scene. Hey, how's it going? I've been flying around. How's yeah? Phew, I'm over it. <clears throat> so, so one last Easter egg for all of you guys that yep. wasn't necessarily fit in anywhere. The sound effect for the Yellow Jackets lasers. Anyone know where it comes from? Oh God, remind me. 
It is the same sound effect that the Adats use firing at the Hoth base. <laughs> oh, the, the Star- oh, really? Uh, yeah, it's. I think it's like touched up a little bit, but it is the yeah, same yeah. sound effect from Skywalker Sound. Oh, nice. They specifically used it. Nice. I mean, he may as well have entered to the Empire song. Uh, right? Uh, see you folks uh, next week. I think it'll be our review of the Fantastic Four films with Chris Evans. He did do bad Marvel films. <laughs> I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And no. tiny neural handshake Shake complete. <laughs> <laughs>